0: Welcome to Film Fight Club with our flashy new theme, courtesy of my favourite, my hero, Sir Elton John, who's actually featuring in one of the films we're talking about this week. I'm Glenn Falcons, the from Falconscreen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Hey, guys. Freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. I can't believe we gave you that validation. And the director of Queer Screen, which has kicked off and which is continuing from now all the way through to Sunday, Lisa Rose. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, boys.
0: So it's great to be here. We're talking all things Queer Screen. It's kicked off for another year. I love that the festival runs both during September but then uh, recurs during the Mardi Gras season over in March. It's kind of this biannual event.
1: It is, yeah. So the Mardi Gras Film Festival has been around for 25 years. So we had had our big uh, anniversary in February. And then uh, the Queer Screen Film Fest, this will be the sixth edition of Queer Screen Film Fest that we're currently having. Uh, We started it six years ago mostly because... Uh, there's so much more LGBTIQ content that's being made and also with the changing landscape of at the time when we started at DVD but now streaming in terms of how quickly films go from the festival circuit um, and theatrical release to being available um, for at-home viewing. So it's that thing of going the window of a year between films is, film festivals is a bit too long sometimes now.
0: I think so, and I'm glad it's here, and we're seeing that sort of thing more and more. We will be talking about queer screen films later in the program. We will also be talking about the City Underground Film Festival, some of the amazing flicks we caught over the weekend. But first, I'm very keen to talk about a film that is happening at uh, Van George Street tomorrow night. It mm-hmm. features, as was discussed earlier, one of my icons, but not he's not the main icon in this film, however.
1: No, that, that would be George Michael, who is... Uh, uh you know rest his soul um a fantastic uh, film so this is the basically the film is called George Michael Freedom it's the director's cut um so there was a a documentary that came out that was on um, TV about 2 years ago um, and this is a director's cut version of that there's an extra 15 minutes of footage and i personally think it's a far superior film it's wall to wall music uh, there is a lot of celebrities in it just talking about uh, put the music and what the music of George Michael and the, his songwriting means to him. Um, Elton John is one of them, Mary J. Blige, um, Stevie Wonder. Uh, there's there's a whole bunch. And it's just, uh, it's we've got it in the biggest cinema at Event Cinemas George Street. We're going to have um, some special surprises and some um, performances happening uh, that night as well. And it's selling very, very fast. And it's going to be a super fun night. And I hope actually that... Maybe it'll be annoying for some people, but I kind of hope that people kind of sing along because it really is just music the whole entire time.
0: Oh, I will be, and I will, we will be there. And I'm getting more and more curious as to some of the surprises, so we shall we shall see. Excellent. And another film I'm keen to talk about. I was walking through on my way to the Underground Film Festival yesterday, and I walked through a beautiful cafe and in more. And there were piles and piles of beautiful, gorgeous dogs, and they were just so cuddly. And there's one film I think here which is a, a very touching film which will resonate yep. very strongly with all the dog lovers out there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a film called Life in the Doghouse. It's playing on Saturday at four pm. Uh, there's a handful of tickets left, so be quick. And it is just the literal most adorable film you could possibly see. But it's also got a really important message. It's about two um, elderly gay well, not elderly but they're like older gay men who um, have been in a relationship for about thirty or forty years, and they have created Created a dog rescue that basically happens out of their own house, and they can have up to seventy dogs living in their house at any one time. Yet their house is cleaner than my house, and uh, I don't particularly have a dog. Um, but <laughs> it's just a beautiful film. It talks a lot about um, the you know the negative impacts of pet shops and uh, getting getting dogs from, um, that, that come from puppy farms as opposed to adopting dogs that are at pounds. And um, it's pretty hard-hitting in a few moments, but there's just the, a lot of the way that they filmed it, which I think was really interesting, is that uh, they shot it basically from the dog's perspective a lot of the time. So the camera is pretty much on the floor for lots of the film, like looking at the dogs and how the dogs are experiencing life in um, in Ronnie and da- Danny and Ron's rescue. Beautiful.
2: I, well, I didn't walk past um, any especially interesting dog scenes on the way to Sydney underground, but I did walk past on the way back white Rabbit, uh, in which reminds me of another film that I think sounds really interesting, which is white rabbit reading the description of this. It sounds like it's capturing, um, the confused millennial lifestyle in oh, an authentic way. Would you say very, that's accurate? Very,
1: very much. So yeah. So it's a it's about a performance artist, and uh, one of my favourite scenes in the film is just basically her making a, a YouTube video of herself, like just burying her face in like Cheetos, and she's just filming it. And she gets like she gets like four views. And it's like, wow, well, exciting! So it's just about this performance artist and how um, she she lives in LA and she's kind of got um, she's doing this thing, um, kind of it's called Task Rabbit, where she goes and just does these. Little jobs to because she, like know. Fiverr
2: sort of thing. Yeah,
1: yeah, because because the, the art isn't sustaining her financially, so that's what she's kind of doing. But and then she goes and does these performances in parks and supermarkets and all this sort of stuff. And they they went in sort of guerrilla style and filmed those things of her doing them. And so you're getting real captures of what people are doing and how they're reacting to her performance and then she kind of meets this woman randomly and they kind of have this connection and it's it's yeah it's a really quirky fun film i really i really enjoyed it and i um, i hope people do as well cool
3: our segues are getting better and better guys oh, well good. done well done <laughs> 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 uh, the one i was thinking about was uh, i'm going to play it straight this one uh, it's a film that merges sport with the uh, you know, which is a very toxic place for a lot of people, and actually, mm-hmm. sexuality. So, I was very interested in Mario and what it's trying to do.
1: Yeah, so so Mario is a film about uh, two soccer players who um, are set in Switzerland, and they are both trying to get to the professional league. And they sort of meet, and there's a bit of they have a bit of chemistry, and it really just goes into the, what sort of happens when they start to fall in love, and how they have to be closeted to their teammates, uh, and you know, how they both react to that. They both react in a very different way from each other. Um, and it, it really does talk a lot about uh, the toxic max masculinity of um, of sport and also homophobia that exists in sport. And so I think it's a very uh, realistic portrayal of what could happen in that sort of situation for two men who happen to be in love in a, in a professional sport
3: the other one which I was very intrigued about is Nothing to Lose That's someone with a large body and who loves to dance oh, I good. think I, I was t- it was hitting the great right kind of notes for me so I was like <laughs> when can I do this when I, Glenn would sing along I would dance along to this movie if I if possible
1: yeah well you should come along dance so that, that's an Australian uh, premiere for a documentary that uh, it's about a dance performance that happened at the 2015 Sydney Festival and it was a massive hit it pretty much sold out every single show
2: I remember hearing about it back then yeah yeah,
1: and it's basically uh, Kelly Jean Dream. Drinks- Quarter um, who is a a queer activist and um, queer artist and um, fat activist. Uh, She created this documentary and it just basically it it captures it from the point of their um, open auditions that they had all the way through to the performances at Sydney Festival. Um, It profiles a number of the dancers uh, and it's just a really interesting look at the fact that we need to see different bodies on screen, on stage, in performance, in the media uh, and it and it's a really interesting take on our preconceptions about um, what is sexy and what is attractive and who can perform and who can entertain us. It's a really interesting film and the whole bunch of the cast um, and crew will be at the screen and we'll have a and a afterwards, which I think should be really interesting. I've seen KJ do some interviews before and she's she's great and so it should be really great.
2: Another one of the films that grabbed me looking through the program was Abu Father, which mm-hmm. Yeah, could you tell us a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so that film has played um, many, many festivals, um, both uh, queer and mainstream throughout um, the world over the last 18 months. Um, Ashad Khan is actually going to be a guest of the festival, um, courtesy of the Canadian Consulate, so he's arriving tomorrow. um, And he'll be here throughout the festival. And it's basically about his relationship with um, his father. Um, So he was a Pakistani... Um, they were a Pakistani family who immigrated to Canada and his father um, became a devout Muslim at some point point. Um, and it's just about their relationship and there's some really beautiful um, animation that's used in the film as well um, and he...
2: Is he himself an animator?
1: Uh, I'm not sure actually. Yeah. That's a, you can come to the film right. and ask that in the, in the Q&A.
2: Yeah, from <laughs> reading the description, it sounds like it has a pretty interesting montage style. Um, yeah. Drawing from Bollywood, which is our... Big fan of excellent,
1: good, <laughs> yeah. No, Talking he's a Bollywood representation. He's a very, yeah. uh, he's a very talented filmmaker. And he's very charismatic and very um, outspoken and interesting. And I think the Q and A um, will be fascinating with him on Sunday.
2: Right. Yeah, I, I really like that idea of drawing on media to talk about how it represents our identity um, culturally.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
3: Talking of Bollywood, I think Glenn, you have a movie which features one of Bollywood uh, actors, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, we are talking yeah. about Kid Like Jake Glenn. Yes, Yes. I, I
0: remember. I remember <laughs> seeing the trailer. I just. I, I, watched, I knew <laughs> he so was a Bollywood actor. It. I watched. Um. Yeah. I watched all the uh, trailers before, and I knew Priyanka Chopra was one of them. I just kept thinking, 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 <laughs> which one was it? And I record, Yes, it is a Kid Like Jake, which also has the wonderful Claire Danes. And oh, I should let you tell. No, no, you go. It is. the closing night film. It and is. It's quite a panoply of actors. It
1: is. So yeah, Claire Danes, Jim Parsons, Octavia Spencer, Priyanka Chopra, um, Anne Dowd, who um, plays the horrible aunt in um, Hammet's Tale She's so good and um, Amy Land- Landecker as well from Transparent is in it so it's really wall to wall great actors and it's a really very of the now story it's about um, Claire Danes and Jim Parsons are a couple who um, have a child who is about to enter school and they're just trying to navigate uh, getting the child into a private school and um, Octavia Spencer is the, the teacher that, that advises them to um, in the essays and stuff they have to write
2: Amazing cast.
1: Yeah, yeah, amazing cast to talk about um, Jake's gender variant play as the as the point of difference and so they really sort of try to Grapple with what they should do and whether they should do that and how they should um, react to the way that their child is expressing their gender. And so it's a really interesting film and it's directed by Silas Howard, um, who is a fantastic um, trans filmmaker who did um, *Transparent*. Yeah, yeah. it's one of the one of the key people behind *Transparent*.
2: Right, well, executive producer. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked a
0: lot about the features, but something we had—what I'm loving—is that you have so many shorts playing, mm-hmm. accompanying the features, and we've really lucky. We've got a sneak peek at a few of them, and I'm very keen to talk about them. But I think we've, we've been talking privately about ones we for ones that were our favorites. Right. But yeah. I—we we
2: got to see a selection. Yeah. Yes,
0: but um, Sam did it. It was yeah. the, for me the model of what a short should be.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a. It's a. It's. It, yeah, why, 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 that's an. Ex- why do you say that? Why do you think it's the model of what a short should be? Just because it's just. Purely entertaining from beginning to end.
0: I found it very entertaining. I found I like the idea that short should be an example of what filmmakers can do on a limited budget. Mm-hmm. This yep. took place with what, three actors yeah. in a confined setting, and um, and they had access to Alfred Molina. And okay, yes, <laughs> yeah. one of them was in um, Indiana <laughs> Jones. Granted, but um, it's it's something that it's a it's an original premise that's going to stick with you, and yeah. that's what a short should do. It should just stick and stay and exactly. put a pin in your head. Yeah.
2: I yeah. I wasn't such a fan of that, but I. I really really loved a shot in the program run boys um it's just first of all um i was hooked right away with the the direction and the control of tone it's really um interesting visually um but as we were saying before this it keeps changing um you, you know a lot happens in the 10 minutes absolutely and it keeps shifting your perspective of what this short is about until it comes full circle at, at the ending. Um, it has a really interesting father-son relationship at, mm-hmm. at the core, which goes against expectations Absolutely. and a lot of the narratives that people are used to in queer stories. I think yeah. um, I th- I thought it was just really, really strong.
1: Yeah, it's a very, very uh, solid film. That actually played um, Flickrfest earlier this year in Sydney already. But I just wanted to bring it back because it's such a quality film and it needs to be seen. Yeah,
2: the characterisation and acting was phenomenal.
1: Yeah, he's a filmmaker to watch, that guy. He's made a a few shorts that have um, played a lot of festivals and I I can't imagine it will be long till he gets a feature.
2: Yeah, that's what I was thinking watching it, just this guy has got a, a big future. Yeah. I, sure. ca- I
3: can imagine uh, Glenn, Chris not being interested, uh, or at least raging inside when Glenn was saying yeah, that uh, Sam did it was the <laughs> exemplar of what shorts should be. Uh, yeah, some strong words were said earlier. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah, not
0: as much a fan, but we, I think we did find some middle ground on the other one we watched. Potentially, the one set oh, in the U- Yeah, the one set in the U.S. Yeah. around a particularly. Awful that, that happened some years ago, but was a little bit longer than the other shorts. But I think mm. uh, worthy of its running time.
1: Yeah, so it actually goes for twenty three minutes, and it's uh, that's long. That's long for a short to get put in a in a package. It's in. It's playing in a lesbian shorts, and I actually have three of the. There's three of the lesbian shorts that go for about twenty minutes, um, but they're just such fantastic films that I just couldn't not include them. And um, Masks uh, recently won the Audience Award at Frameline, which is the biggest LGBTIQ film festival in the world, and it's been nominated for the Student Oscars. As well, and also a very big film prize in the US, which is uh, I think it's called the NBC Universal Film Prize or something like that for short films. So it's really uh, going places. It's by a up-and-coming um, young filmmaker, and it's about a um, closeted uh, Persian uh, Jewish uh, medical student, and uh, and her and her girlfriend go to a nightclub, and some pretty full-on stuff happens at the nightclub. Um, and it's just I think really impactful. Um, from a number of a number, a number of angles, and also just the fact that you know, like you were saying, sometimes short films can try and pack so much in there that it kind of loses its way a bit. But this one, I think it's covering a lot of stuff that we may have seen before in terms of coming out and things like that, but it's just done I think in a really unique way. Um, and uh, I, I personally find it a very um, impactful and moving film.
0: I did too, and I certainly don't think I've ever seen a shorter film, for that matter, um, in cinema in Australia about the Persian Jewish community, and I do have a number of Persian Jewish friends, what? so I did, I did appreciate that. Yeah. It was that focus. Yeah, for sure. Now, we've spoken about the films, I know we're keen to see, but I'm very curious, is was the one we haven't mentioned that you might oh. recommend?
1: Oh, God. Um, let me think. Um, well, I would say, on, yeah, on the Saturday night, there's another film called Bex. Um, which is a a lesbian film. It also has a really good cast. It stars um, Lena Hall, who um, it's it's actually her film debut, but she's a massive Broadway star. She won a Tony Award for Hedwig and the Angry Inch, um, and it also her, Christine Larty plays her mother. And there's also um, Mina Savari as her love interest, and the singer Haley Keiko is in it um, for a brief period as well. And it's just about a down on luck um, singer who returns home and has to live with her mother because life's kind of hit her for six and uh, she starts just working in this bar singing and the, the music that's in it is all original music and it's um, she's such an amazing singer it's beautiful music and um, she does some pretty like it's pretty funny in parts as well but she does some pretty things where I've had people tell me that they just want to throw things at the screen and go oh my god why are you doing that mm-hmm. like she she's a very flawed character um, but I kind of like watching films about flawed people because that's what we are as humans
2: beautiful. I agree with that <laughs> just a very sort of Personally, existential yeah, poignant tone to end there <laughs> <laughs> that's where yeah.
3: we are all yeah we're humans in the end ouch hurt we are <laughs> on, on that t- note uh, come <laughs> to <a> Cliff
0: on <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that note come but how do we get there we know it's screening at events and was George Street through to Sunday we want to go how do we
1: get tickets how do we get there go to au and get your tickets um and so you can buy them online there or um you can see some details there of call the office and we can sell you some tickets or you can come down to the cinema um an hour before any session and get some tickets as uh, long as the session hasn't already sold out
0: great and lastly, we were talking about what's screening in Sydney, but I spend a lot of my childhood in the beautiful, beautiful Blue Mountains. And 2SCR does broadcast, as I learned driving out to Adelaide, all the way a little bit past Lithgow. So <laughs> we, and I'm very curious. You have screenings coming up at the Blue Mountains as well. We do,
1: yeah. We uh, we go to Mount Vic Flicks, which is – I just love that cinema so much. And it recently won the, um, an award as the best regional cinema in Australia. Um, I think it was Australia or it might have been New South Wales. But uh, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it is just the I've been past it. It, well you need to go in as okay. film fans you have to do it like they and make sure you get the soup they make homemade soup it's oh, really wow. good and they just they have a really great selection of films that they play there um, and we've been going there for a few years now and it's actually uh, we do a few regional things and that's the one that I always go to um, and just go for a weekend away because it's just such a great vibe and people are so happy that we're there and um, we're you know we' we go there twice a year and it's great I love it.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm planning another trip to Adelaide, so I might just try and time it because I haven't been to the cinema and I want to
1: see it. Go.
0: Very good. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And we'll see you tomorrow night for George Michael and a few other flicks over the weekend. Fabulous. And we'll be back on Film Fight Club talking all things Sydney Underground Film Festival and the myriad, myriad of crazy, wacky, weird, wonderful films right after this. As well as the more ordinary ones. Uh, There were some ordinary ones. They were good too. Stay tuned.
3: That's supposed to be Saturday. What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Ah!
2: Ah! Yeah, that really is
0: our new theme.
3: That theme had everything. uh, It
2: solidified itself, replacing the film Fight Club theme, aka the Fight Club theme that only Glenn remembered was the Fight Club theme.
3: But now we have have something much more
2: memorable. Punchy, literally, punchy.
3: Literally fighting the the fight in Film Fight Club because Because it's been missing for too long. Yeah, we don't really fight much.
0: Yeah. We couldn't believe when we saw Kingsman and Elton John, my hero. Like, he is my hero. Like, I listened to him before yeah, I he to music. he actually is Glenn's hero. He's uh, not just
2: saying this to promote the new theme.
0: Played Wednesday night. i that it's all right, but with a Wednesday, Wednesday. It's, like, it's just perfect. You yeah, just designed exactly. our new theme. So it, it is our new theme. Um, so that was, yeah, that was quiz I'm we keen for tomorrow night. Thanks, Here's Lisa, some, for good stuff. Let's hear some Elton John.
2: Yep.
3: But in the meantime... Here's some George Michael, I think.
0: Yeah, or, yeah a bigger, bigger priority, I would say, <laughs> for this festival. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm going to see Dr. Michael and why John. can't we do both? Da, 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 yes, we can, as we saw, as we saw many, many films. What does the
2: segue? We did more than both is. of the films at the Sydney Underground Film Festival. We yeah. did, we did uh, most a lot, mo- most of them, most, most. Yeah, too but, many,
0: as it will turn out. Yeah, it was a pretty crazy, crazy weekend. We were there at the factory from Thursday night all the way through Sunday, watching the things that were underground, that were unearthed, that were a little bit outside the mainstream, very outside the mainstream. I
2: was too outside look, the mainstream. I feel like it, they should actually host it somewhere beneath the earth, like those, um, those, like. Old sewers of Sydney, sort of tour yeah, things. make it I like, like it with
3: cinema screens. Actually underground. Actually underground. You know, yeah. because you feel like you're descending from the pits of the earth after the weekend. You know, and you are kind of smelling of sweat, tears, and films. <laughs> then you come back into what? civilization.
0: That's, that's actually pretty accurate. That sounds like one of the films we watched. It Relaxa. does. It does. Oh, God. That was not my favorite. So, yeah. yeah. Where,
2: where to begin with where, the Sydney Underground Film Festival? I think we should begin with
0: the film that maybe should have been the opening night double, which is yep. the... Well, it was called... Okay, we're going to call
2: it The Magic Group for the
0: purposes of this podcast. Though, um the title, which it subsequently became known as, it's, was it's The, Insufferable, the Group. Insufferable Group. It's called The
2: Insufferable Group. But Sydney Underground Film Festival picked it up when they it was called The Magic of Gru, But the producers thought were having difficulty getting festival spots, so they switched the title to The Insufferable Grew, which it turns out is a terrible title. This film is very much about the magic of its star, who is Stephen Grew, a amateur filmmaker who, as a labor of love, has made over 200 bizarre films directed by and starring himself with his wife creating the costumes and doing the design um and th- this documentary follows his pretty much his everyday life as well as the creation of his newest movie, which it finally has achieved uh you know seen him achieve his dream of casting a Hollywood star in one of his films and this is of course jack black and it's you have to watch these as it a turns double. out was a it turns out was a fan of
0: Stephen Grew himself. Can you imagine just being a persistent DIY filmmaker and, and finding out Jack Black likes your stuff and is like, oh, yeah, right. I'll, I'll star in your next
2: movie. Why not? So it very much is about the magic of this guy that he, through his sheer passion and tenacity, is able to surround himself with people supporting his vision. But for some ridiculous reason, that it's been retitled The Insufferable Grew. And let me tell you, this guy does not come off as insufferable in this documentary. And it, it also, I think, even if this is helping them land... Uh, slots in festivals. I feel like this is kind of unethical. Like, this guy did not agree to be in a documentary that calls him insufferable. He's touring around with the documentary. He came all the way to Australia. We met him. He's a really cool guy. He's a really cool guy. As Glenn said, it's it's actually mean, and it drags down the documentary to call it that. Um, And the fact is that... There are moments in the
0: film which depict it's a minor aspect of the film. It's more about that his tenacity as a filmmaker, where he is um quite forward with members of his cast group. But the fact is He just comes and, off as a director, uh, as set. said. Yeah, on par for how du- you'll see a director act on set, it's not ter- it's not Particularly yeah. outrageous. And it wasn't personal as it's being no. with any particular individual. The the film really does capture some magic
2: moments.
3: What the title actually tried to communicate is something like he's somewhat like Ed Wood, you know, making yeah, that's right. deliberately bad movies, but that's not the case actually. If it's anything, the documentary man. shows how much passion, love and actually craft he has got a hold of. Which is, for that kind of DIY budget, it's very difficult to do.
2: One thing I didn't like about the film, um, it has, for some reason, this really... There's animation throughout the film, which sometimes is cool because it illustrates things that, you know, it's best to see visualized. But at other times, it really feels like it's trying too hard and isn't really necessary. Like, they're worried that the, the people they're interviewing aren't interesting enough without this animation going on.
0: This was a big issue in a lot of the films this year. Why do, it, it's, it's, it's more common, generally, why do people just decide to assert, oh, we need something to illustrate what we're doing. Let's put an animation. I think everyone, it's very common in Japan, actually, in Japanese television. But there, it's much more solidified. It's much more informative. Look, Here, it's just yeah. um, disconcerting and inconsistent. I
2: think it's the YouTube generation. People, everyone thinks that you know you you can't um, withstand just watching someone talk about you know whatever it is without seeing a million little cutaways to something else to keep things spicy. Um, another thing I didn't like about the presentational aspect of this film. For some reason, the documentary filmmakers have decided on this '80s video game kitsch aesthetic. Sort of when, like, characters are introduced as video game characters with '80s, um, you know, Nintendo entertainment system type chip tune music in the background and like Tron, um, cyber grid kind of visuals. But um, f- this really doesn't match with Steven Grew's aesthetic. It feels like they've gone to something familiar to as the visual scheme for this documentary, familiar to audiences, but it doesn't really represent the spirit of this guy who really is more of like a um he's not like he's made some video game fan films, but I don't associate this guy with video games or that 80s nostalgia thing after watching of VHS culture. He's more of like in a weird way, he's like a radical digital artist, you know? We um there was a lot of talk when uh, about um filmmaking being made more accessible with with video cameras becoming widely available on the cheap and this guy is one of the the few people who i think has really embraced that to the fullest to just yeah. become the filmmaker he dreams of being i shot this in 10 days yeah incredible exactly to see. And, and not not um being held back by restrictions and the unexpected race look we've got a if we go a review the the film report, it's it was not. the unexpected race which is the film that the Insufferable grew. Oh, that title, is following the creation of. And it had, had the world premiere. We saw world Jack, Jack Black, Black world premiere at this festival. Look, the film,
0: um, there were some creative flourishes. There was some beautiful camera work. The acting was terrible and really terrible. The actors uh, were not up to the task but the film itself he clearly has like a creative mind and creative visions and it was there were elements of the film that were very touching and mm. i appreciate that you know you work on he has this cult following in the us and you can see why you work on film to film this is actually a remake of a film you made what 10 15 years yeah, ago yeah
2: that's right we saw a lot of documentaries about <laughs> filmmakers there was another one just to touch on briefly called mixman which was about uh, a guy standing in his own way and not being you know who really had great shots but didn't have it together mentally to get things done it was an interesting companion piece with this because here's a guy who has no opportunities but somehow makes the these huge scale films for what he's doing happen anyway you know
0: yeah i wasn't a big fan of mixed man i think there was too much focus on a figure who was clearly interested in the filmmakers but i didn't think that really translated through to a feature-length documentary
2: i thought it was interesting as somebody who wants to go all the way with filmmaking but i I think if you you don't have that kind of passion to relate the things going on in the film um back to your own experiences and your own hopes and dreams, i don't think it'll hold your attention as a documentary
0: and the next one we're talking about uh we will be talking about films in a moment uh, film's about filmmaking, but Tokyo Vampire Hotel, which we right called on the opening night oh or, uh, my second opening night
3: god yes uh, how can i how do I begin to talk about this movie because this movie was Bonkers. Man, firstly, I regret missing it. Firstly, Glenn, what a cop-out. Like, can I just call this out Oh on my air. god, Oh, is Glenn this, who's, this, this is happening? Glenn was
2: going to go into this movie, but... But
0: Glenn Glenn had watched a lot of films <laughs> that day, and Glenn wanted to, you know, chill, and maybe get, see one that didn't end in, like, after 1am. So you went to see Goose, which sucked, right? It, it was awful. There was one good jump cut, and it was about psychedelic faxes, and yeah, it was, it was not the highlight of the festival.
3: Okay, this wasn't how this happened. Let me tell you how it actually happened. Okay, <laughs> me and Glenn, we go upstairs. I'm very. You, know, <laughs> you know? You go into the theatre. Let, let me tell you straight, okay, as I, I've already said. Anyway, uh, we go in this theatre, you know, we sit down. I'm very excited because, firstly, this is a scary movie. Apparently, you know, a lot of gory stuff, a lot of scary stuff. So I. Varad th-
2: is the notorious yeah, coward like- <laughs> of when it comes to horror <laughs> movies, a film fight club.
3: Yeah, so I try notoriously to avoid any scary stuff. So I'm very thankful that Glenn has chosen to accompany me. Why, thank you, Varad. You know, and I'm like, okay, we sit down together, <laughs> side by side, and I'm like, I have a shoulder to lean on in case it becomes too much. And then I'm like, Glenn, I turn around to Glenn and say... Aren't you glad that we have each other for two and a half hours? And Glenn's like, What? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, it's like, I'm like, Yeah, this is two and a half hours long. And yeah, are you ready for this? And Glenn's like, No, <laughs> I didn't even realize this was going to be two and a half hours. So Glenn did what
0: um, you can do at the is of the Grand, which you're not supposed to, but you kind of can. He walked you just, out you hop,
3: before the film even and started. Hop to another theater because, you know, you hop between films, yeah. you learn about new things. I you thought he Glenn went to the Glenn bathroom Glenn, and he did not, never came back.
2: Glenn did this to me uh, and with a film that we'll talk about after the break on our podcast. Yes. Um, you know, I, I was like, hey, Glenn, where are you? When we sat down for bugs and then halfway through the film, I get a reply back. Oh, yeah, I'm just outside chatting. Right when he was the, about to enter that film with me. So I look forward to hearing this from
0: you above. There should be a movie the called The Insufferable Glam. Underground Film Festival. Oh, oh, bringing the brutal. fights back to Film Fight our Club with our new theme. The next week we will be back talking with the crew of SF3, to Smart filmmakers. Smartphone
2: Film Festival.
0: And some filmmakers who are in the final. Have a wonderful night. Enjoy movies. Check out the podcast. Good night. Bye! And we are back on the Film Fight Club podcast. Wow. Um, so, yeah, we're going to be talking more about the Sydney Underground Film Festival. Um, Actually, about the films, so not how I'm a big flake, Virat. So, uh, actual thoughts on movies. Tokyo
2: Vampire Hotel, the film that Glenn could not tolerate the horror of. Virat faced his fears <laughs> of horror movies, and Glenn bailed on the challenge like so many people who chose to donate to the ice bucket challenge of sitting through a two and a half hour movie.
3: Yeah, everyone got the ice bucket challenge wrong. Everyone. I, I'm so proud of myself, actually. Like it's, and so disappointed in Glenn, which is.
2: Was it the ice bucket challenge of movies?
3: It was, but also, it's interesting because this is a recut version of a six and a half hour Amazon TV series. Yep. And this is recut into about 140 odd minutes. So nothing actually makes any sense. Way too
2: condensed. And Sian Sono, I think, could have made the long version work really well because Love Exposure maintained
3: my interest and attention for four hours. But that's long by design, and I feel this show and the way it's caught actually takes the worst of Sono and puts it together in kind of a showcase reel. So you kind of see the glorious kind of the stylistic excess of Sono. And a lot of people enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. And I think kind of crowd which were there for the Midnight Madness enjoyed it. But it is quite nonsensical in terms of plot. You can't follow anything. Things happen for no reason. I've
2: always thought Sono is more interesting as a stylist than a storyteller. So it's possible that just cutting it down to the stylistic excess and cutting out all the narrative actually results in a better film. Even it's, if if you can accept that it makes no sense.
3: It's interesting that you say that because I was never bored in those two and a half hours. It right. made no sense. I couldn't understand anything that was happening on screen, but it still kept my attention. And that's probably a testament to how interesting Sono is stylistically because he actually does way more things because he's given the freedom to just go crazy. And this is... Okay, the premise of this is there are two rival clans the Corvins and the Draculas one, they're who are, Romanian
2: right one of them Romanians versus Japanese
3: yeah Roman- so there is this insider outsider kind of race culture foreigner kind of subtext going around as well but Japanese are considered inferior by the Romanians and Romanians consider, you know
2: okay quick question because this would be very 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 Japanese if so were the Romanians played by Japanese people
3: no. This, wow. Okay. I'm this, impressed. This, this time they actually got real white people. So kudos to the white people Sweet. who are okay. the minority in the show, but just, they do represent, Just, <laughs> you just know? to
2: give some background here, in Japanese things, you'll often have um, – this isn't always the case um, – you know, you have Scorsese playing a white person in Akira Kurosawa's Dreams, for example. But often, I think, in in order to avoid the language difficulties of working with someone who's who's white and whose Japanese might not be so strong, they instead say a character is half Japanese and, and just cast a Japanese person as the the foreign character. It's just a quirky little trend, I've noticed, in Japanese films. However, great that Shion Soto did not do that.
3: Yeah, I mean... Okay, so this this kind of film recut version follows, or maybe in the TV series also follows, the kind of trials and tribulations of a soon-to-be-turning 22-year-old protagonist played by Amy Tomita, who was also in Anti-Porno. So she makes a recurrence here as Manami, and she's going to turn 22. And before she can, she realizes her life is turned upside down because she has ancient Dracula blood running in her veins. And before, we've all been there. Yeah, we've Come all, on. We've I think all that- been there. Uh, and basically, she has to control her hormones and the weird things happening to her psychedelically, psychologically, and her body changes. And she's also the chosen one for all the vampires. Of course, there's a chosen one. There's always a chosen right. one. So but basically, it follows all the tropes. What did you think, overall? I, I am... Okay, there is a restaurant scene which is happening quite early on. And it is fantastic in terms of how it is staged as an action sequence, and it dumps, I kid you not, literally feces dumps all over Tarantino. It's not literally, though, is it? No, it is. All right, on that note...
2: On that note, um, that was the film which I left right in the dark as the lights dimmed. But what Virat said reminded me of another film I watched, which was Let the Corpses Tan. Um, It reminded me of Tarantino in many ways because, like his films, it seems less inspired by life than it is by movies. But what makes Tarantino interesting in this film of failure is that Tarantino finds ways um, because he's such a master dramatist, I think, he finds ways to imbue his movies, even if they are born just from fantasies of an adolescent mind consuming way, way too much junk cinema. He still finds ways to infuse them with soul, whereas this movie was just a catalogue of fetishes of movies. And I found it suffocating being inside a film that was so much about movies, number one, and two, was about fetishizing the way that the cinema depicts bodies being blown apart, it seemed to be such a cruel film. The characters here were just toys to be splattered, and the movie was so in love with its own stylistic excess that it came across as a hugely masturbatory experience. So uh, Let the Cops is Tan, for me, uh, was one that I thought I had to catch um, because of all the hype. And I would say that, against the odds, it was far and away the worst film I saw at the Underground Film Festival. So Let the Movie Tan... Yeah, let the movie burn. <laughs> so I let th- it burn. I didn't see
0: like, The corpses Tan. I saw, um, and I'm not sure what time when I saw at that time, but another one we're going to talk you about You at is... the same
2: time, actually, flat the Flat Earth one. Oh, Behind um, the Curve. Behind the Curve, yeah.
0: Okay, well, I may as well talk about that one because uh, Behind the Curve was really, really interesting. And just on a general note, I mean, I think we should talk about the festival generally in that... The documentaries it has... are strong. The documentaries are strong. Look, Frankly, look, this is one of my favorite festivals. I have fun every year. I was there all four days. When I was watching films and wasn't watching films, I had a good time. It was like being at a Metal gig at the Factory Theatre. You popped between stages, you saw Friends, it was very chilled. Having I, said that... The social interactions were better for me than the films. Yeah, I loved the documentaries. The documentaries Ace is the same as last year. I think a lot of the non-documentaries left a lot wanting. I enjoyed the shorts that I saw, but I came... If I was recommending aspects of this program, I'd say comfort social aspect pick a you know a fictional film here or there, but stay for the documentaries because they were Ace as they were last
2: year. I would say about the, the the shorts before we get onto the documentaries, I just want to say that my favorite overall session I attended at the festival was the LSD Factory short session, which was really high quality experimental films. Um, the, even the the Australian shorts I saw there were really strong. And there were quite a lot of Australian films. I think, honestly, some of the best filmmaking going on in Australia you can see in the experimental realm, as this, uh, as this Shorts program has convinced me. And it also ended with an amazing 23-minute um shot, which was a little bit more mainstream. But to anybody who knows him, he's a bit of a cult animator. Um, this one was him in, in top form. So just a really great program all around.
0: I I really respect the fact that they don't just play. I, I enjoy the shorts before films, but they don't actually program shorts before films at this festival. They just program three blocks of shorts: WTF shorts, LSD Factory shorts, and uh, Love Six shorts. Love Six shorts, and also altogether. reality bites
2: or documentary shorts.
0: Yes, and those are interesting some are two minutes, some are eight minutes, hmm. but you they're enjoyable and you, they're well. Put did together. you attend one of the short sessions? I popped in and out of um, LSD. Yeah. Right, right. Actually, that sounds that's strange <laughs> to say. <laughs> but it would be very I'd, Sydney Underground Film Festival. Just God. look at
2: the logo this year where they blatantly showed an allusion to taking LSD. It took me a while to pick that one up, but yeah. yeah. That's, Subtle that's enough was, to sneak past the, the people who might I mean, complain.
0: Pr-
3: yeah. Chris and I are sort of not strangers, but Glenn. Uh, Glenn, are, are Glenn, look, I think Glenn, I think I think I think, that I think aspersions
2: against Glenn based on subjects where we would prefer not to talk about on the air shouldn't be cast, and we will we'll resolve this conversation after the show, dear listeners. But moving back on, <laughs> uh, any
3: reference to LSD is purely about the shorts.
2: Oh, of course. Anyway, of course. Um, and, uh, and another film we'll be discussing by the end, of which closed out your festival session. Oh, um, yeah, so we, we promised to break all our rules in the true spirit of Film Fight Club. But back to the documentaries yes. you were talking about. That's let's hear about some of your favourites. <laughs> yes, favorites. let's hear
0: about the documentaries. And just take a moment to shout out to all my friends in Amsterdam where I used to live. Very fond memories. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful town. So behind... <laughs> Get out of here. Just How many places
2: have you actually lived he's, in? He's been, he's been everywhere, man.
3: Sing! Yeah. I've oh, been I everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, that, man.
0: That song... I've tried. that. that uh, it'll take a while to get through. But to what about the documentaries? <laughs> what about the documentaries? Behind the Curve. <laughs> well, um, these people have suddenly not... Well, okay, but I was going to think of a segue. It was a terrible segue. Behind the Curve. This is one of the documentaries I saw. It was one of the best films I saw at the festival. It is about flat earthers and those who take the view that the earth is flat. And about two people who are prominent in this movie in particular, Patricia Steer and David Sargent, who I also learned is the world digital pinball champion, which I thought was pretty cool. So they... Now, the, the tagline for this documentary, to give you an idea of the attitude of the filmmaker, uh, to Daniel Clark to the crew, is the only thing they fear is spear itself. So this film... <laughs> for. <laughs>
3: That is so bad, but it's really funny. And
0: that's the reaction it wanted to engender. That's exactly the thing. When it sat back and just presented this community and the scientists who disagreed with them, it was really interesting when it was passive. But there were moments there where as if to say, just to be clear, I don't agree with these people. I think they're wrong. Um, it got very heavy-handed and I think it was regretful. There were a few moments that were very emblematic of the tagline, certainly the ending of the film where he just basically points and laughs at members of this community. Now, I, it's not a view I take, but very frankly, it was more interesting to hear the scientists who had varying views say, um, no, this isn't dangerous, this is dangerous, but I, all, I think that's wrong versus here's why I take this view and here's this community and how and why they've built up.
2: It sounded.
3: How, how, how big is this community? Because I, I actually had no idea that people still believed that the Earth was flat. So I thought it something it's something. It's been getting a lot more media book.
2: attention recently.
3: Oh wow! I think as the okay. world is becoming
2: more and more divided into people who believe in conspiracies and people who generally don't. Yeah,
3: you can wear your prejudice as a badge, and people celebrate you. Welcome to 21st century.
2: Yeah. Well, the according
0: to the film, the community is growing, and certainly there's a very strong internet presence and I, f- I didn't know much about this community and I found it very interesting. Aha, went,
3: the internet, that place.
0: That place. You look, and it was, Well, actually, the last thing I'll say about this film was very interesting that it talks about conspiracy theories within conspiracy theories and theorists. Um, there were elements of that community and others of the internet who did not like the people I referred to. For instance, Patricia Steer was uh, said to have been a government shill because her first name had the letters CIA in it. So there's a lot of, um,
2: <laughs> you know... Confirmation bias madness going yeah, on. Yeah, some, some, some stuff out there.
0: That's behind the curve. What, uh, we'll be talking more about the other documentaries that played at the festival in a moment, but next we are talking about a film Chris and I called, called Relaxa.
2: Yeah, okay. Uh, Relaxa is um, a a movie contained to one location about a guy who for some reason sticks with his brother's ridiculous challenges i think it's implied he has this inferiority complex with the lack of and he has daddy issues so for whatever reason he feels like he has to live up to the challenges that his older brother who's the only sort of older authority figure in his life um and this child one of the challenges he's given is to beat level 256 in pac-man which was a challenge issued by billy mitchell a character you might know from the king of kong where he played basically the villain he has records in a whole lot of video games that have recently been contested and uh, this guy set a challenge that actually couldn't be completed which is to beat level 256 of pac-man and offered a hundred thousand dollar prize this movie is about a kid's failed doomed endeavor to try and finish it without leaving the couch so the plot is basically that he figures out ways to attend to all his needs while sitting on the couch for what turns out to be an extremely long time and the camera stays only in that room with him for the for the whole movie i think it's an interesting concept that a genius director could have made into something brilliant but this is not a genius work of direction um I think the the concept the camera work the constrained camera work, the slowly moving camera and the intensity of the arguments between the brothers at the beginning of the film really hooked me in. Um, for the first half an hour I was thinking this had potential to be something great but I think um, the film this might sound like a dumb complaint about a movie that's trying to replicate a guy's descent into hell over a really long period of time but I think the movie was actually too slow paced or at least didn't introduce new ideas fast enough for in order to maintain interest in such a constrained premise and while it ended in the only way that it could have to be in any way a meaningful movie with an emotional core By that point, I didn't care. I'd lost interest in this character. And the the movie doesn't, I think it hints towards the ecstatic kind of transcendence that he achieves through his suffering, but it doesn't make us really feel it. And if we felt that, then maybe the movie would have convinced us more that it was worth taking the effort, the journey with this character. But since it didn't do that, the empathy was there. And by the end, I didn't really care.
0: Yeah, I didn't particularly like this film. I don't care for this film either. I don't disagree with anything Chris has said, though. I disliked it for, I think, entirely distinct reasons. I think this film could have gone in one of two directions, but it went in both. One was a very straightforward, okay, practically, if you were to try to accomplish this challenge, what were the myriad of things you could physically do in the constraints of your apartment to get it done? The second is the absurdest. Crazy directions this film goes in. Let's I don't say, think were, yeah, I don't think it's necessary. Half. no. Well, it's, actually, I, I liked the third half. The, the third, bit. yeah, I did, but, yeah, but I, I feel that.
2: like they need to commit to that earlier for it to be satisfying and, it and jumped explore that more.
0: So quickly from one tone to the other, it just clashed. It,
2: it did not work. It did not work. I agree. Yeah, I think that's a very astute criticism. And I'd also say that um, if they were to go towards the kind of poetic, transcendent thing that I was inferring before. It would have been better if it had stayed grounded by reality because when the absurd, fantastical, almost supernatural things start coming in towards the end, um, any 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 other break from reality is kind of cheapened because the movie's already gone to this completely crazy place. So I think um, it just robs the climax from the power that it could have had if they had, you know, uh, as Glenn said earlier, settled on either direction for it to go in. The next film we are talking about is one I have not seen. Which this, this the Barbara Rubin documentary, which yes. I saw. Yeah, um, well that that was. Uh, I'll just cover that pretty quickly, as well as another documentary I saw. I saw we saw lots of documentaries about filmmakers. Um, we you know we saw Max Man. Um, we saw the Insufferable Grew. Think so he's making films, which I'll talk about in the moment. Right, Barbara Rubin um, was also about that, and um, this uh, as was King Cohen. The Barbara Rubin documentary I found um, not particularly extraordinary as a piece of filmmaking, but an informative and solid documentary that does a nice job aesthetically of imparting to you what this filmmaker's work was like. It's a documentary about an experimental filmmaker who blossomed onto the scene in New York uh, in the 60s when she was just 18 years old and really shook up the scene and introduced some genius new ideas. Um, But the film focuses with um, more of its runtime to the relationship she had with the more recognized great men in society than it does to analyzing her art, which seems kind of counterintuitive when the story is is talking about how, um, you know, the, the, this story through a kind of feminist angle to an extent. Um, it, it seems kind of counterintuitive to focus on the people she loved rather than what she actually did, as if... Um, there'd be more attention or more um, expected interest in the subject if it focuses on Ginsburg or Bob Dylan or Fellini or Andy Warhol or The Velvet Underground. But then again, um, I will give some credit to the documentary maker here because what's interesting about her life is that um, she actually didn't produce that much art, so maybe there just wasn't that much to say. She made a few works that made a big impact, and then she spent a lot of time struggling to create something new while she socialized and fell in and out of love with some of these huge luminary artistic figures of the 1960s. And then her life takes another crazy turn um, where she moves away from filmmaking completely. Um, uh, She tries to pull herself out of her drug addiction and ends up becoming an orthodox Jew, which people considered was crazy for someone who was so strongly into the feminist movement and the free love ideals of the 60s. She lived a really interesting life, so and I don't think this could have been an uninteresting movie. The archival footage of the, the residents of the factory and uh, the, the critics and actors who surrounded her, many of whom are still with us today and still working in the industry, is really interesting. Um, I think it, it's... I, I just would have liked to have had heard more analysis of her critical work the other document um just briefly the other documentary about a filmmaker that only i got to catch of the three of us was king cohen which is a story about um the story of the life and the work of larry cohen who was one of the most resourceful independent filmmakers ever and crossed over into the mainstream and found big success several times while always remaining a kind of um rebel figure nonetheless. He had achieved mainstream success through the 70s to as recently as Phone Booth, which he wrote the script for. Um, and he always came up with brilliant concepts like that and stuck true to his vision. It's even more conventional than the Barbara Rubin documentary. It feels a little bit like a DVD extra. It's you know it's very or a afternoon TV documentary as opposed to a real cinema work. But this guy's story is so fun, and the movie has so many great anecdotes about his filmmaking process that I got allowed out of it anyway. I think overall this has been one of the trends of the Sydney Underground Film Festival, documentaries about people who made work against the odds. And I wonder if the festival programmers are trying to encourage more people to get into filmmaking through inspiring them with these stories. Maybe that's one of the missions of the festival.
0: I think it is, and I think this is a good opportunity to talk about what we haven't listed now, which is the masterclasses and the whole trench of things that are happening to the side of the festival, right. which I Chris, some of you, which well, you attended.
2: I got to see a Q&A with Alex Proyas, but I missed his, uh, his his lesson on filmmaking, and I also unfortunately missed the Tim Van Damond one. I only got to go to one of the workshops, but it definitely seemed to be a companion piece to the, to the group, Barbara Rubin and... Um, uh, Siggy's Making Films? Uh, oh, I didn't see Siggy's Making Films, but it was a, definitely a companion to Ruben, Grew and Larry Cohen documentaries, which was making films for little or no money, which was really about changing your approach to um, how you view working as an artist and finding ways to get it done no matter the obstacles. And I think that was a, a common trend in all of the commentary about film going on right now. Alex Prius and uh, Jay Katz discussed this in the q and I saw after his debut feature, which it was beautifully restored um, digitally. Which was Gremlins of the Cloud, Spirits of the Sky, yeah, Gremlins, gremlins of, the of the Clouds, yeah, the eighty nine film. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, honestly, like I was saying before, the interactions with people were way more interesting than the films most of the time. But when the films were good, it was usually the documentaries.
3: Well, we're talking about usually documentaries, but one of the features really stood out for me was Madeline's Madeline, and that was probably one of the features which took my attention. And also, it it is blending into that kind of docu-fiction style because Josephine Decker has been trying to push the limits of what's possible in the fiction narrative space yeah what is this is interesting into improv and kind of stuff so in terms of style in terms of actual visual medium and in terms of the form it's a very interesting piece it follows a young sort of teenage theater student uh, played by Helena Howard in a debut which is fantastic work I mean I can't believe she's just one film old it's Hard to actually argue about that. Uh, And it's about her trying to find herself in the role of a cat and the trials and tribulations that takes as her very cunning and aspirational teacher, played by Molly Parker, tries to push the limits of what's possible in terms of improv theatre.
2: I think this was the most interesting experiment in form in a mainstream context in terms of narrative storytelling that's been attempted in cinema since uh, Mother... And Mother, I think, has quite a few things in common, even though they're ultimately quite a different experience visually to watch. They're both thinking in a similar direction about new ways to create visual narratives. They're both going for a really immersive experience that tries to put you into the head of the main character, um, and sometimes literally, you know, almost by putting the camera so close behind someone's head that it feels like you're about to enter into it. I think this is a nice little mini trend that Son of Soul also belongs to. Three different approaches that have quite a bit in common about making us really, really empathize with the character. I,
3: I agree. I mean, the opening sequence of Madeline's Madeline where you don't quite know where exactly the camera is and you, yeah, know, stunning. you, you have to really just follow along which is a very interesting way yeah. of shooting a sequence where you literally following along these performers as yeah. they're doing their thing. And but it's, it gets yeah.
2: more conventional about halfway through, yes. which is actually for me when it started to go downhill, when it was more focused on conventional ways of shooting the scene. But earlier on, there's overlapping kind of sound in a new way, not not um, reminiscent of Altman's experiments with that, but um, a new approach where it seems like voices of different characters are overlapping. Um, it feels like you're seeing multiple planes of reality, which is implied to be how Madeline is experiencing the world. And the, the camera is always um, creating beautiful images with shallow depth of field which usually i find shallow depth of field to be like quite ugly in the way that it's used but this movie makes it both incredibly beautiful and a way of suggesting the character's isolation from that around her and the real the real brilliant um, move by josephine decker and her cinematographer ashley connor is that you never feel that um this is too heavy-handed in how it visualizes her disconnection. Especially it just it took me, it takes me, I'd never thought about it in those times literally until talking about it right now. Yeah.
3: So I think especially because this it, is it, smart it, visual storytelling. It, it talks about mental health quite extensively That's without right. ever you know, becoming a movie about mental health. If yeah, it makes any sense because you know a lot of those movies fall in the trap of being didactic and you know on the nose about here's this mental health movie and it's yeah, still yeah, yeah. is about mental illness, mental health. The but,
2: sound design was also absolutely superb. Yeah. The, the way how that the um,
3: fabric of the film and the actual visual medium conveys yeah. how the mental health is deteriorating is brilliantly fantastic. done. But yeah.
2: I think as it gets into more conventional narrative territory in the last third, I think yeah. I think it wasn't satisfying enough. I think it hinges too much on. Um, I, I just ultimately didn't find yeah. enough satisfaction in the conflict between the um, theater teacher and Madeline that the movie ends yeah. up hinging on. I think it should have focused more on the relationship with her mother, which is what really got me interested yeah. around the beginning it's, it's of the it's
3: movie. the best, worst years in Miranda July in any kind of yeah. narrative. Yeah. Which, Miranda like, July like, is great, as is the lead in actress. Incredible.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think ultimately she settled on the wrong story to tell, but she built up a, a brilliant world and characters, and I'd love to see more films from this, this up-and-coming director. So that is Madeline's Madeline. The next one we're talking about is a
0: documentary, Sikki's Making Films, which had one of the great guests come out from America, Joe DePayer, who is a uh, public historian by training and lives in Maryland, where, as I learned in the course of this film, there was the Maryland Board of Census, which was unique within the country, in that it's one particular, a number of people driving it, but one person in particular who was initially the subject of a short film and later became a documentary. Uh, the film jumps between this interesting figure and broader, more broadly the history of censorship. It attempts to explore why in America things like the fiction of sex on screen may be considered uh, worthy of censorship, whereas extreme violence is... Not. This is a very interesting subject for a documentary. Um, I know that I haven't seen censored, which was discussed earlier in the year. I know it covers, based on what I've heard from Chris very similar ground. Um, though I found, and while I haven't seen censored, I did find this depiction of the issues is very, very interesting. The one thing I will say about it is. Um, we see see quite a few documentaries at this festival and others where filmmakers insert themselves in the documentary. A few minutes ago, I talked about Behind the Curve, where I think it was poorly done. In this case, um, I feel it should have been done more. Speaking to Joe, he was a fascinating character and obviously a very intelligent person who spent several years working on this documentary. He does not commentate at all in this documentary. He has no presence. And him providing some backstory, his thoughts would have been incredibly helpful, whereas he leaves this up to a number of commentators, some of who are very interesting and some sound who sound like a lot of different... Um, think of the uh, Chris Stuckman style of YouTube comedy, or YouTube, YouTube, YouTube reviews. Now, this is an dispersion on Chris Stuckman. I quite enjoy his reviews. But those sorts of reviews work in the context of confined snippets within YouTube or a similar format, which do not work when they're supposed to provide needed backstory and much else to the documentary. So I think that those shifts in tone were problematic, but otherwise um, it was a very worthwhile documentary. I think certainly one worth checking out. The next film we are talking about is, I think, the first Australian film we're talking about during this discussion, which is Bugs.
2: Yeah, Bugs is one of actually one of the strongest films of the festival, and I was preparing myself for the worst going in. It was an Australian film I'd heard nothing about, And all too often that leads to getting burned, sad to say. But this movie filled me with some hope for the future of filmmaking in Australia. Because like uh, when we discussed around the Sydney Film Festival time, Chocolate Oyster, this is a pretty good film that's been, um, and this one I would say is actually better than Chocolate Oyster, that's been made on very low resources. Um, I I think, I know Chocolate Oyster received a boost in funding from the government, but I think that one was largely made with no budget, essentially and money was brought in at the end to complete it. And I think something similar happened here with Bugs, only with even less government support. It's um, a micro-budget movie um, with some nice formal experimentation with different sorts of uh, cameras used to try and show the world through the eyes of its main characters, who are young people. It's a story in the mould of Harmony Korin's, um, gummo or kids, you know, really showing like a trashy, dirty depiction of... A dirty life lived by, uh, lived by young people, but what sets this apart from Korean's early work is I think there's a lot of heart here. There's an unexpected amount of love for these characters. The storyline is about t- um, essentially just teen- teenagers hanging out and uh, drinking a lot and smoking a lot. Um, I can't I lost count of how many times there's shots of people taking a long deep breath from a bong in this movie. So people who um, are offended by Kids from Camden, being kids from Camden, shouldn't see the movie. Um, but it captured something that felt really genuine and true to me about growing up and about how, as young people, we, most of us are essentially innocent. Um, it, it captured something really sweet and touching there. Um, the one thing that I, need, I think would really improve the film a lot is if the element of the film, which is that a person that most of these characters barely know who goes to their school in this community dies and some of the characters find the body and report it to the police. Um, But uh, these scenes are interesting in and of themselves, but I don't think they're um, properly integrated with the lighter material that comes throughout the rest of the film. Um, I also think at 86 minutes, it's a little bit long. I know that people want to push towards the 90 minutes range because a lot of people consider that the bare minimum but some really strong films have been 60 to 70 minutes long. and that's I, think, fine. Yeah, I think, Yeah, I think this movie would have been great at 65, 68 minutes. Yep. And you can see more during festivals we learned. Um, yeah. Oh, and I, I, recommend, I recommend Bugs, honestly. I think it's an Australian film that's actually worth seeking out and a director with a hell of a lot of promise.
0: The next one we're talking about, I think it's one we've all seen. It wasn't the most technically proficient from the festival. It was my favorite, nonetheless. Um, That is the Bill Murray stories. Now, it's interesting we talk about how a film can be 60 minutes to be okay. This was 72 minutes, I think. I'm actually pushing it. It
2: could have been 60, and it would have been minutes. It could have been 55. It could have been a perfect hour-long TV documentary.
0: It finished its point by that time. This is about what we discussed with Stefan last week on the show. It's that you've all heard these crazy urban legends about Bill Murray, where he rocks at a party watching the dishes or playing in a band. Or he does random acts of kindness for people And this, by my account, is the first documentary About the new phenomenon of nicecore And Tommy Avellone, an American filmmaker and documentarian Trying to track down Bill Murray And all the people in these internet legends To find out what is true, what impact it have on them And just why does Bill Murray do this?
2: Yeah, um, I think the most interesting thing about this film is Bill Murray and the worst thing about it is Tommy Avalone. Sorry if you're listening. Um, For a number of reasons. The opening montage of people uh, talking about the legends of Bill Murray, I just watched and felt like, oh no, it just seemed so amateur. Um, both in some of the production choices and also just the way it was written. It it didn't feel like real scenes of genuine people talking about Bill Murray. Um, It felt like a guy, hey, let's, it felt like you could feel the the hand pulling the strings behind it. Like, hey, let's shoot a bunch of reenactments to... Um, fill people in on the way that people tell stories about each other, uh, you know, about Bill Murray. But the way it was filmed didn't feel genuine to me. It's like these people, real people don't talk like this. This feels fake. So I think he tried to show off his his narrative direction technique at the beginning, and it, it didn't was work shot. out. Yeah, um, there are a few other times his directorial technique I think really gets in the way of the film. There's a laughable part where um he throws back. There's a, a shot of him inserting himself into the film, which he does inconsistently. Um, where he spreads his arms out and says South Carolina, then suddenly some Bon Iver type track cut, flies in over a um drone shot flying over South Carolina, and then there's some establishing shots like this is an ad, and it's like hold on, hold on, hold on, this is a documentary about authenticity. Stop trying to show off how slick you are. And then um another thing is he introduces himself in to the um with all this these dumb attempts at humor, and it's like I'd rather just watch. Um, a clip of Bill Murray being funny, you know, than um, w- witness lame jokes like this guy being afraid to call his idol Bill Murray, so making his mum do it for him. And, to be uh,
0: fair, that was after many, many, many attempts of calling the apparent but I also which is the only way to reach Bill Murray. But
2: while they showed that, I felt like he had also set up that scene that he had called it and he'd exaggerated the number of times he called it in order to create more of a I I, I mean I don't know this for certain but I felt like it felt stilted to me I thought this is just an obvious gag that he's trying to insert into the narrative to make it more interesting Okay. Um, I'm willing to
0: give him the benefit on the doubt on
2: that point. What I will say is, in terms of the things that
0: went on behind the scenes, there is a bit at the end where he talks about the nature of his interactions with Murray. And I feel that there was, uh, well, yes, it is a short documentary. Yes, You can't say all things go on behind the scenes. I feel there would have been a lot more that probably went on that weren't privy to. Um, I the best scenes for me were just the recountings of Bill Murray's most hilarious encounters, which i got to say were very moving and touching.
2: I thought they are moving. And the film does move towards a pretty moving explanation for why Bill Murray does the things he does. But I think the journey to get there would have been stronger and more convincing and felt less like the movie was just about a hagiography of Bill Murray if they had analyzed it from our angles. If they had, for example, said, like, is he lonely? You know, like, um, I think it's worth pondering these things. Is he doing this for attention? Because... I think we can all these are things I've pondered. I ultimately have come to the same conclusion the documentary does, which is same. that he's doing this because he wants to give people um a positive moment in their lives. but I think a, a real um examination of this pretty shallow subject should go in with a little bit more depth, and I also think the conclusions that they come to, as you say, have been made, and you start to hear multiple people saying the same thing paraphrased and I think this movie didn't have 70 minutes. Oh, in it. Th- there's a crescendo at the like,
0: 55, 60 minute mark, which is, oh, it's a natural conclusion to the film and then it and goes for another 12 on. minutes albeit a nice end credit scene. so Should th- have just skipped right to the end credit scene. So that is the Bill Murray story's Legends of... I think the full title is Legends of a Mythical Man. Yep. And the next film we are talking about is one we have also all seen which is The Green Fog uh, by director Guy Madden and two others. It is a reworking of Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo with no footage from Vertigo but footage... It's
2: only a few moments where Vertigo footage is featured actually. Oh sorry, you're, Yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, you,
0: yeah. I stand corrected. Yes. There are uh, 100 films all set around San Francisco, which are a prestige. Some, you know, you'll recognize, you know, the famous ones, The Rock, Dirty Harry, Peter Kills with San Francisco, <laughs> San Andreas, yes. Yeah. Where
2: the, he and sync video?
0: Yes, with the uh-huh. in the redwoods in the giant yeah. beautiful trees. Uh I forget which one that was. But all these iconic iconic and less iconic moments in film and television yeah. in San Francisco which go to recreating each aspect, shot by shot, moment by moment, of Vertigo.
2: It's another Guy Madden um love letter to cinema of the past and you know watching this movie i was thinking i thought i love movies but i'm never going to love movies like guy madden does and i'm okay with that he's pretty much devoted his career to making movies about aspects of movies to making nostalgic movie tributes so if and so he does it he does it better than most so if you're into that yeah i, I recommend this um i don't think i wasn't engaged with the montage that much for a lot of the movie. I just I thought it was kind of boring, and there were moments when it really comes to life and is funny or um, poetic and interesting. But I think um, someone like Godard in the image book actually made something more interesting out of this kind of scattered montage that this does. Would you agree with that, Virat?
3: Yeah, it was okay. Yeah it's, it was, just, yeah, it's just it, it, different... It, it was okay.
2: It's just different moments from Vertigo represented by scenes from other films, and sometimes to a strange and confusing extent, and sometimes it's very clear what he, what he's doing. Yeah, I, I found it interesting that the scenes that were impactful
0: and well done were the ones with more upbeat tension in Vertigo. Yeah. I'm referring to the rooftop chase. I'm referring to the scene where the painting is turned around and it's the picture of the friend. I'm referring, of to the, 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 the reveal, The reveal, yeah, the big reveal. Those worked quite well. There
2: is another great... Um, moment though of of the slower moments where I think maybe it's just because I was more engaged with this because the film was just starting, but I loved the way that the initial conversation that uh, Scotty has with Elster at the beginning of the film was framed. The, um, where yes. it's done yes. it's very in interesting avant-garde style where people start to talk and then you never get to hear their conversation and then you see them finishing so you're seeing the body language of a conversation but not hearing the words and I, yet it was a little disjointed at times but I felt it was disjointed but that was part of its charm at least in that moment of the movie because it was creating this alien effect that makes you think what were they saying and you think back to what they were saying in Vertigo or you just choose to look at the body language really interesting approach but later on in the movie I, there's other parts that are disjointed but don't have such an interesting idea behind them and that's where I just just kind of tuned out. Yeah, Some good moments, some not-so-good moments. The last two things I'll say
0: about this film. Uh, so I, 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 can't, I can't believe this is actually the first time we've actually spoken about Hitchcock on the show, which is unbelievable to me. Surely we've spoken about Hitchcock before. N- not in any detail. I think keep it's keep mentioned in the about passing.
3: Malick and... Yeah. Yeah. David Lynch yeah. Yeah. and Endless
2: Cycle. You
3: know, Who's Hitchcock again? Yeah. Yeah, a, who? who so,
2: so last century. So, so, oh, want, if yeah. Hitchcock's so good, he could at least put out a film next year on Netflix like Austin mm-hmm. Wells. Yeah, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> but
0: look, I, some of the first films I ever watched were Alfred Hitchcock films. Yeah. I watched them on Fox Classics all, all the time. And Vertigo, I mean, I know this is a big debate we could get into. Vertigo is my favorite Hitchcock film. I think it's his best one. We definitely I,
2: should talk about that on the show.
0: And I'm, I've am i seen it maybe a dozen times. I still find this dragged a lot of times. I think you have to be a real Vertigo fan or just um, in the middle of the hectic... I mean, realms of film school I reckon to really get into this. if
2: you watch Vertigo the day of watching this, you'll have the best time. Because that's honestly, fair. or maybe the day before, but I, I haven't seen Vertigo in like 18 months, and that's too long to go before watching this film if you're going to catch a lot of the references. I caught the, the biggest, the the all the bits that... I mean, I thought I knew Vertigo really well. I've seen it like four times. I know that's nothing to some of the Hitchcock scholars out there, but you, that's, that's, I think, quite enough times it's, it's to memorize standard, yeah yeah and and there were still lots of bits here that i missed though there, it's interesting to, to analyze the bits that um you do know and the bits you don't but for me there were enough bits that i didn't know that i started to actually lose engagement with the film because i think it rarely reaches the point where the montage is interesting it, enough of its own accord and not just as something that you compare to your memories of the original vertigo
0: and i would recommend watching this immediately after watching Vertigo. The last thing to say about this film is a big, big bone to pick with this in that while they covered all these amazing films about San Francisco, there is one, and I mean it, iconic film about San Francisco which is not at all referenced in The Green Fog. Do you know what I'm talking about?
2: Um, San Francisco
0: Jersey Fight Club? Girl? No, no, it was made in 2002. It's a very successful film. Uh, we've all seen it. It screens at the Orphan every month. The room. The room.
2: You're right. The room would have been really funny a thing to introduce into this film. Why I, was it not there? Seriously. I wonder why if was Guy in... Madden hasn't watched any films made after 1995.
0: No, there uh, San Andreas was in there. Oh
2: yeah, you're right. San Andreas was in there. The room um, and the room would have been maybe maybe he thinks it's too tired right now. Or maybe but it's just too obvious. That's what I mean. Like but having Tommy Wiseau throwing his hands in the moment of Scotty's rage would be a nice <laughs> little maybe a little bit obvious, like like some of the gags in Mandy, which we'll discuss later on. I think we'll discuss that next. Yeah, but uh uh, you know, still, still could have been a nice moment of film blasphemy. I, I, I feel film like, blasphemy. It was a I missed like opportunity. opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you know, the instead of the lake fall people falling on the t- off the on the table you know at the end like, or just you know, Tommy riding on the tram or the shots of the San Francisco
0: Bridge yeah. why not yeah, I mean, exactly. It,
3: it, it made me want to go and watch Vertigo again which is the best thing you can say about a movie yeah. it's a homage to Vertigo and it makes you want to go and see it again yeah. because I don't think I can see it in the way Guy Madden saw so it in the kind of particular detail it's, and his mind works in really interesting ways about the connections he makes I think that's The draw card for Green Fog is that it just makes it some really interesting, weird and some laugh-out-loud funny connections. So, Because you're not expecting it to be lol and it's definitely lol-worthy in some instances. Right. Lol's in? triumph.
0: Lol's <laughs> triumph. So a uh, film for many where lols will triumph is Mandy, <laughs> yeah, which Chris will be talking about tomorrow morning on Breakfast, so please do tune in.
2: Yeah, I'll go more in depth. But basically I found the lols a little bit too triumphant in this one. I was really on board before the movie went into the comedy, and the main approach to comedy is just, haha, this is such an outrageous 80s action shtick and haha Nicolas Cage is making expressions like in the funny YouTube videos but the first half of this movie I feel is betrayed by going so silly in the second half because it's actually very effective as really a horror film it's incredibly slow faced, druggy feeling. Slow faced. Slow sorry. <laughs> yeah. Slow paced, druggy, druggy feeling. But you know, slow faced does describe it. That's true. Remember there's some scenes of really, really long, slow fades on people's faces. Yeah. It the whole movie seems like it's been made in slow motion and it's accompanied by an incredible score from Johan Johansson, his final ever and possibly his best film score ever, which is, naturally enough, slow paced metal, creating this sense of oppression and doom. I was loving that side of the film and the experimental visual so much that I felt betrayed by it going so silly and taking away from the sense of horror that is actually there at the beginning and the sense of otherworldliness. There's nothing more mundane than an internet meme.
3: Yeah, I mean, this film truly belongs to Andrea Riceboro. It's not a Nicolas Cage movie. When it becomes a Nicolas Cage movie, that's when it actually goes really bad
2: yeah it loses something when she leaves the picture and like this is a spoiler but because it happens halfway through the film but it's central to the marketing so any almost everyone who's seeing the movie is going to know now since this is the the last movie we're discussing i think if you want to know nothing about the movie if you're the kind that likes to go and we
0: talk about quickly mega time squad beverly loughlin those the only other
2: ones they're bad but if you want to stop (laughs) listening we'll we can say a little bit more after but if you want to stop listening now um i'll skip ahead 30 seconds yeah that's like fine. We're, gonna, we're gonna start spoiling
0: films in three two all right spoilers ahead yeah People so the spoiler the
2: spoiler that would be in the trailers and i know was in every description of the movie i read beforehand which is the reason i feel like it's okay to talk about it without warning is that mandy is the name of nicholas cage's wife who's killed by the charles manson type um bad oh what's that hippie Goff. yeah he's really good yeah, yeah. It's great. um yeah and yeah. he
3: totally spoiled carpenter's music for me forever
2: oh Look, yeah this Look, is
3: basic basically
2: um she get she exits the picture when they kill her, and I honestly feel like the concept could have been better like to you a movie like you are never really here is so smart in the way that it gets you on board with a um character who's like a violent sociopath without quite glorifying them, and I think Mandy's sort of trying to go in a bit. Of the same direction where a bit of they're both kind of have it your cake and eat it too movies where you enjoy the um crazy psychotic <laughs> explosions of violence that the main characters do but they also don't want to be 100 percent condoning it i think um but you'll never hit really here pulls it off so much better the, this movie there's something trashy and manipulative about how it relies on that old chestnut of getting revenge on the people
3: who killed your wife um, I, th- I think, yeah, and it's like, a bad chestnut. But also, I think it relies on Nicolas Cage overacting deliberately. Yeah, which I it's think like, is just a bad, re- like you know, he's not trying to act. He's trying to ov- like turn it up to eleven. Yeah. Which I, he doesn't need to because, I, you know, he's, he's Nicholas Cage. Everything he does yeah. is already turned up to 11 anyway.
2: The response that I often get when I say make this point is, well, you were never really here was way more of an arthouse take. But I think this is actually very arthouse in how slow and experimental it is. The first
3: half is, like, you know, very sort of atmospheric. Ve-
2: so atmospheric. Like, it, it really makes you feel something. Yeah. It's,
3: it's not... It's, 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 two it's different. It's, we're talking about two different films here. Exactly, yeah. One, and that's the problem.
0: really interesting, visually beautiful, as it was said, slow-paced ethereal Watch, is the word which man. doesn't have really violent elements to it and then it descends into abject extreme comedy. Violence, comedy or, violence comedy violence and you know what I enjoyed both separately I needed an intermission I needed an intermission in the middle of this film and I certainly would have liked that the, um, uh, we talked about this during the Melbourne International Film Festival the one other thing I'll say about this is that uh, we, well, Chris and I were lucky enough to see this at a great crowd at the first screening at Myth, um, uh, Virat saw it the and other the night. Festival, at yeah. this, uh, which I think, I think those are the only two crowds I would really want to watch the sort of film in where it wouldn't be treated as simply a joke or meme-worthy. I mean, you, I, I remember there were other screenings at Myth which did take People place at local at whites. It, People were just yeah. laughing at it the whole time. And, and, um, I think but while, while there are elements the to it, it deserves to be reaction. taken seriously. It's there weird, are though. To be taken it's seriously. weird
2: for a movie to ask to be taken seriously then suddenly invite the reaction of analyzing it based on meta- meta movie aspects like Nicolas Cage's meme status the movie leans so hard into that like the the bathroom scene is at odds visually with the rest of the movie. The whole idea is let's just put the, put a camera down and see Nick Cage and, freak and out. And which I would is totally make how the movie works with the uh, bathroom otherwise.
0: scene. It, it, it was a piece of performance art which was very well done. There were individual moments like it was a shard of glass, um, a scene at the end of a car. Otherwise, those yes. Otherwise, that scene is th- those, yes. otherwise the funny. bathroom scene I think distinctly yeah, funny, but was well done. It's
2: the kind of laugh that makes you feel bad afterwards. Like oh, I shouldn't be rewarding that. Like yeah, it is funny, but we've got to stand for something greater.
0: Look, this is how <laughs> this, this is made with marketing,
2: and that was done with marketing in mind. Exactly, design, man. Sure. You can you can but suddenly yeah. feel that
3: sell out energy,
2: but I, I would to recommend in the '60s vernacular of this. Yeah. The, some of the characters in these movies, in this film,
3: <laughs> the the DOP work, the actual red filter, the sort of
2: the music, act, yeah, the music, and it's just high, fantastically directed. Every yeah. aspect is being pushed forward towards a particular unique vision.
3: And and I liked how the drawings mimicked the actual kind of the light among the stars and the sky, kind of blending yeah. into different colors. It's very, you know, if you are a fan of. LSD experimental shorts, uh, you would really enjoy this movie. Yeah. yeah. So the last two
2: films. A be- Look, I'll just, sorry, just to okay. cut you off, Glenn. <laughs> um, it's a better acid horror movie than Climax was. Two films have attempted that this yes, year, and this one yes. was way more successful.
3: Climax should have been a short film. It should have climaxed before it actually began. <laughs> this movie, you, I think, was
2: both like more druggy, more satisfying on a story level. Um, I I think it just trumped climax on everything level that it was attempting to
3: achieve greatness. Climax does have better dance sequences though, but oh that's... yeah,
2: man! That, that, I would yeah. watch a version of Mandy that had climax-type yeah. dance sequences. Sophia Mattela da- dancing the ideal thing, like yeah.
3: in those interludes. Andrea in those Riceboro cage. dancing to, yes. as well yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. to slow, me- low, yeah. slow but, metal, that music. that's what we have to appreciate. Yeah. There were all these scenes <laughs> which could have
0: lasted twenty seconds, which had dragged out over like six, seven minutes. And some and people that's really hate cool that,
2: but for me, it was goddamn awesome. Yeah, I loved it. It was like it's the music, the movie equivalent of metal, like Sun if people know sun also known as sun O, if you pronounce the unpronounceable bit um i guess it's not really unpronounceable but yeah they're a, they're a <laughs> band that if you don't know them the music is basically like a black sabbath music played at somewhere between quarter speed to like 120th speed so uh this was the cinematic equivalent of that just this long you know doom drenched feeling being stretched out and then it became a meme fest so uh, anyway, enjoy your Nicholas Cage memes, guys. Which is screening Manny's around, screening around the, the country. 21st. And it's also got another screening at the Ritz, I think, and at the Orpheum, and at the Orpheum. But it's so plenty of opportunities out on to see them. Amazon. So if you already have Amazon Prime, but I would say I recommend seeing it in the cinema. Yes,
3: it definitely deserves the big screen experience. You need the full Nicolas Cage. It's you more. Don't.
2: It's more the full Panos Cosmatos, a director who I hope next time trusts his initial instincts. Yeah,
3: and doesn't rely on Nicholas Cageyness.
2: If he, it would be cool to have another dialed down cage yeah. Yeah, like yeah, cage, can, Nick Cage performance like adaptation. Because Nick Cage in Really underrated. We, yeah, he needs to go back to Can we cage that the kind of cage?
0: Stuff. That should be. Wait, that's not what he's interested in doing now. He's interested in doing drugs. These...
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> out there, crazy. What, what, what was the line in the film? Crazy evil. Crazy, crazy, crazy evil. evil. That uh,
2: moment. That was. That moment was okay. That was before the movie went way yeah. too much into the the comedy. That was a moment where it was horrifying. And and funny at the yeah. same time without one over, over dominating the other,
3: my, then it went too my, far. My favorite Nicolas Cage line was "You're a vicious snowflake," right? That should be everyone's insult from now on for everything ever. we need a sequel yeah. to The Rock Twitter, yeah. so that oh, everyone is, is a vicious, vicious snowflake. snowflake on Twitter. Yeah. no, everyone's just vicious.
2: I think <laughs> not a snowflake. Vicious right. <laughs> snowflake. Everyone was, calls each other snowflakes viciously.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's probably day. it. That's a syntax yeah. difference, but. There,
0: there, there were some great lines, but I think it was more just the visual. There were some great lines of coke that things. went up <laughs> Nicolas Cage's nose <laughs> in the film. They, and possibly, were there lines possibly it was a clump. It was a clump of coke.
2: Possibly, possibly out, of the, out of the film, but I won't suggest that one way or the I, I, other. I would think I'm just
3: saying that it's possible. I, I think knowing Nicolas Cage is the method actor, he would actually go
2: the distance. <laughs> Right. Uh, and I saw a face-off <laughs> at the Ritz last week. Just, just, just such a good time with Nicolas Cage, right? We're going to take his face <laughs> off oh! Pastor Troy. Pastor uh, <laughs> Troy is <laughs> the funniest name ever. No, no, no. The funniest
0: name was Pollux Troy. <laughs> Pollux t- Troy, The, the same yeah. guy that played David in <laughs> Disobedience. What about the bit where,
2: where Nicolas Cage disguises as Cast Troy, tells Pollux Troy... <laughs> You're so pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> There's just so many magic moments in this film. The face he makes at the beginning as a priest is the, m- is actually funnier than uh, anything uh, in uh, Mandy.
0: But bl- plants the ridiculous Bomb in the middle yeah. of what,
2: when, she He Starts sexually ass- yeah. assaulting a teenage girl, though yeah. implied to be on board with it, and then makes this <laughs> hallelujah <laughs> face with his eyes bulging out. <laughs> Some of them are. <laughs> he jumps out of a plane with two gold-plated guns, just this was, shooting at the same this time. This was genuine Nick Cage insanity. Whereas Mandy is the twenty years later after effect of movies like this, where someone's trying to capitalize on his legendary status. And but think, it'll never be the same as when this was just spontaneous madness. And it's from Nick had Cage's comedy genius. No face and just like bravo
0: bravo, bravo and yeah. the bow chase oh, oh yeah where they
2: both fly through the air in front of this huge explosion that's way disproportional <laughs> to what would actually happen in that situation but like john woo treats it like it's cool ballet where you know like and he's not afraid to get silly whereas someone like michael bay manages to suck the humor out of the over the top yeah, moments like that like we've I miss, I miss this john woo style mission of
3: impossible too. Face no, off. No. You
2: could not <laughs> put John them Woo. in the same category. John the no, last B- the last twenty minutes thing. of Mission John Impossible Two is like a great Action shot film, totally disconnected from the I plot. Mean, the, if it was be, just that, if it was just forget, if it was just a shot yeah, before that, the matrix yeah, reloaded. Place you'd be like, man, wasn't kid. the the Tom Cruise, yeah. you know, with sparks coming off his boots while he flips over yeah. a motorcycle yeah. while yeah. Shooting Dr- driving, two, driving through a I mean, national park, like you, uh, you would be like, man, that was way better than that freeway that. chase overhyped forget, bullshit.
3: Forget Mandy, like Mandy has nothing. So go watch Face Off. Yeah, and
0: then watch the last twenty minutes of Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible. If you do, just watch the last Just go to La Perouse. It's much nicer just to hang out there and actually watch the film. Just,
2: go to La Perouse I mean, and imagine, imagine Tom Cruise. Honestly, um, and no, imagine I, it's so high that you go home and then disobey Glenn's command and have <laughs> force yourself to watch the last twenty minutes of Mission Impossible Two on YouTube because yeah. it's the best There's time you're going to have on YouTube he kicks this week. The sand
0: and a gun flies up like yeah, three feet. Yeah, and that's feet. why it's that amazing. That doesn't happen. I've yeah, tried. It doesn't. It doesn't work. Yeah, the movie <laughs> no, does not happen. That's it,
2: that's John Woo achieved a kind tried. of cartoony, that's just absurd point. poetry where he's so self-serious. He's like what people falsely accuse Michael Mann of being, which is a guy that's so self-serious about his much Show silliness that he ends up creating something that's simultaneously funny and kind of moving because of how sincere and bizarre it is
0: just go back and watch the first film it's still brilliant and then go the watch, the, we'll watch fallout there's
2: another that's director who needs to be making films these days in yeah. Brian De Palma. we miss you man yeah we miss you man he's, he's the one that needs good to luck come back. good luck with finding funding <laughs> and good luck with sorting out the problems did you know that his new film he hasn't been able to yeah, um, heard, release yeah. because of issues with corrupt producers so sad this, that um, this is happening often to our elder statesman directors getting yeah. a, a ripped off by bad producers. It happened to Terry Gilliam on The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. It happened to Paul Schrader on that, that movie. Uh, I've forgotten what, what he did, but Nick Cage was in it. Yeah. Anyway, um, they you can know, always you know, bounce back you know like who Paul Schrader that did with First Reform. You know,
3: you know what's the problem?
2: So good luck to you, Brian.
3: You know the problem? It's capitalism.
2: Yes. yes it is. Capitalism. It is. Yeah. It is capitalism. We
3: just it wouldn't happen in an agrarian Marxist society. <laughs> <laughs> aggregarian. <laughs> but we also uh,
2: probably wouldn't have decadent <laughs> Hollywood <laughs> excess like the entire filmography of Brian De Palma or John Woo. So would you or really trade all of the <laughs> global <laughs> inequality <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, and choose horror choose that, that capitalism has created radio. for it'd, these it'd, filming it'd, experiences?
3: But
0: where would we get the 200 million dollar ridiculous explosion fest? You would not have Conair sir. You would not have to say something. You would have a interesting. Um, you would exchange 200 look, bags of we've rice. We've gone
2: so far from, from uh, the Sydney Underground <laughs> Film Festival, and frankly, I'm loving it. Can <laughs> I just say that um, this is an interesting subject for conversation because you often hear people from the pirate party in such places arguing... Oh, oh, oh yes,
3: Ah, Today is Talk Like a Pirate Day! Arr, okay, well, I'll talk arr. like a pirate. Go and download movies on BitTorrent, kids. Yo, yeah, yeah. oh, hello, um, and a bottle of rum and Johnny uh, Depp's last role ever. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's um,
0: Grindelwald. Oh, God, he's Grindelwald. Man, nah, talk no, about mistakes, but... But anyway, yeah. Um,
3: well, yeah. yeah well, apparently, look, Johnny Depp's also blown away all his fortunes, self-admittedly. So you know,
2: yeah, um, bad life choices. The, the less said about that, the better. But back to back to piracy in the in the um, <sighs> tradition of the day. Um, people Get a VPN. when people argue that there should uh, be no copyright and that um, filmmakers should make their work by touring it, and it should be like a change in the business model, like there's been for music, where touring. Um, you know, has replaced record sales. One, um, I, first of all, I don't. I, it's not going to be like that with film. Because, uh, as you just said, where are the, these $200 million action spectacles going to come from? Exactly. If, you don't, if people never pay for films, you're not going to have that kind of uh, huge production. It could be a better world where we're more focused on grassroots filmmaking, like what Sydney Underground Film Festival is trying to promote. But I wonder if people who are real advocates for downloading movies would welcome that kind of world. People who aren't into this kind of lo- smaller scale, more modest cinema.
3: But isn't the point that downloading would become obsolete, Chris? Isn't that the idea? Come on. But how,
0: how would the studios, like, oh, seriously, and guess what? Well, we're de- no. defending billion dollar Pir- behemoths here. No, but piracy... how would they pay for their films? Piracy how would they is, pay is to... a
3: moral stand against decadence of Hollywood. Right. That's why you really? to bring it back really? to uh, really? <laughs> low budget, really? low
2: budget community or focused filmmaking. <laughs>
3: exactly. But, actually, so that uh, everyone can afford uh, and I'm go sorry? to their The community
2: supports its local filmmakers <laughs> to keep making our stories. <laughs> I'm sorry,
3: but yeah. Who, yeah. who is piracy
2: actually affecting? Is it the big studios or is it the low budget filmmakers? I would say it actually affects everyone.
0: Yes, exactly. It affects these people who... Collateral damage. It's fascism. It's just collateral damage. Like just release it all. And then my have friend recently linked out. me
2: to a podcast where um, a guy who now writes about why you should get off social media, <laughs> who was, in the past was a, a musician, and he spoke about how he was able to make a living through being a niche artist, making experimental contemporary classical back in the days of downloading, but not the days before downloading. But once the idea that music is free came along, he, it's way harder for him. He makes way less money. He'd have to tour more. He said everyone was happy and everyone was making money back then, and people forget that that's been lost. So there's you know there's benefits. Um but there's also negatives. I think it. I think it's unfair that artists should be expected to create work for free in a society where everyone else is being rewarded in a capitalist system. I think. I think this could yes. only work if we had a truly ca- a communist but, but system. The, but, the, but the problem is which aspects. Which we're not advocating. But no, no. you you can't just take aspects of communism and throw them into capitalism and think it's okay that somebody works for nothing.
3: No, no, I I agree with that, Chris. The point I'm making is, do creatives necessarily get more for their work? If it's actually charged more? I don't think so. We as consumers pay more money, but does that money flow into the actual creators? I don't think so.
2: I don't think so either. These are just some of the ideas I was thinking about to tie it back to the festival. After the making films it's for a little bit of no money, money same with with the, at the Underground the publishing
3: industry, and writers. I mean, write, do writers get paid more? we're paying more for books about 30, 35 bucks most of that goes to the publishing but this is houses the but it doesn't really go to the actual writers it's about a model of
0: what is convenient to people very simply if they look, Netflix is an interesting example Standard's is an interesting example where if you pay $10 a month and you don't have to bother with downloads and torrenting and this and that and you can just have it it's $120 a year and you get a lot of what you want people are just going to say okay so the, I, the, the, I the really, television industry is with this I really fashion. don't like this
2: future though a big reason why is it's the films that are able to muscle their way onto Netflix that benefit whereas in the age before Netflix there wasn't so, it, it it it's basically the effect of capitalism we get lesser and less choices in the age of video video dealerships for example different kind of films would have the the opportunity to become popular because a movie could become a word of mouth hit on video just because it's available in all the video stores which everything was available in the video stores whereas these days if you're going to have any kind of afterlife after the movie's done its festival run you have to muscle your way onto a streaming site at some point and not everyone can do that but the st- more the filmmakers are losing sites. out
0: the streaming sites have the discretion and they do promote a lot of independent content they and do in the fact there's, there's, there's if, Netflix is not a monopoly there are multiple streaming it's services true Stan, Amazon is referred to
2: earlier but not LL. everything LL. gets there you know um I just feel like, like they, it, there's yeah, less exactly. options like, which there's is less why. less people are winning no. out.
3: No no but like Netflix has its own agenda what kind of films it wants to promote and you have to then like, retrospectively fit your own agenda the and avenue match it with for Netflix. F- to make sure Netflix picks it out. Look,
2: if you strike big on Netflix, you're going to be more successful as an independent filmmaker than you would have been in the days before the video store. But less people are going to have the opportunity to do that because these are way more curated systems. And essentially, we've given the power of gatekeeping to Netflix, whereas the power was more in the hands of the people before the streaming... Um, and, paradigms. These terrible over the
3: algorithms. I don't need a machine algorithm to tell me what I should watch next, and it always picks the wrong thing. You know, just because I've seen one of one thing doesn't mean I want to more, watch more of it. In fact, quite the opposite. And <laughs> I'm sick of. Netflix, they, they, they Netflix yeah
2: well this proves that the, the computers still don't know you very well the algorithm can't tell that you're a guy who hates things the more you get of them yeah. right? but, but <laughs> the algorithm the thinks more. you want more of this and you're like no I hate uh, it I hate well, everything I'm way know. more likely to have hated <laughs> yeah. this episode than liked it have well, you never looked at my ratings I give everything
3: one star out of five Okay, yeah, like, you, it, you stupid fucking robot <laughs> exactly if if, if if the algorithm <laughs> views by incredible love for Schopenhauer and Nietzsche and how incredibly <laughs> depressive I it's am then possibly I could be able to predict Right. The there's, there's a, there's a man maybe man maybe in, in the production.
2: future we'll be able to read the AI Schopenhauer in the morning so that it can tell that we're just a depressive who's, who and it, it tries really hard to tell if you actually enjoyed the movie you what you just watched instead of just assuming
0: yeah, like most like people do. Key, that you're like, just like oh yeah it was alright it
3: was good may, maybe it was worth two and a half stars no <laughs> one one. I, I, oh, yeah, I, I don't actually
0: rate things on Netflix but I get these strange things like no I, why would I want to watch that uh, that's things
3: you just no. But, like, it just tells me, watch more of because you saw more of whatever you already saw. No. Why? Yeah, yeah. Why would I (laughs) want to watch more of something? Here's the thing. Netflix has all these great
0: obscure things just packed away in the back there. Recommend make, some of that stuff. Make the system more intuitive so I can search for it by myself. But there's another way. You know what's happening? Festivals—they're doing well. Yeah. So the All these ones. We're converting are to growing. a model
2: that's more like the theater. That's yeah. inspired by the way the theater works. More of a festival and local community-based thing instead of a um, instead of a cinema being as much of a mass art form as it has been in the past. I think certain things. I think I think it, it's it's interesting. It'll mean a shift in the way things happen, which is already underway. Um, but it's not necessarily a negative thing. I think it's a negative thing. I think
0: it's a very positive thing. I think community experience is a film where we lose. And as much as good as Netflix is, I don't as always enjoy watching a film with one or two people as I'll enjoy it with 50. I, I don't wonder, want to see Skyscraper you know, or 2012. I want to see it with 100 sarcastic like you know, people, not you know, just I
2: wonder if the roadshow experience will come back before streaming. Yeah. You know, instead of a, mov- a movie opening wide, then coming to video, it tours the country for, you know, paying to select audiences in the city for like six months with the filmmaker in attendance and Talk- then it goes to Netflix.
3: T- talking about Netflix, actually, Something again. more
2: community-focused before the streaming rollout because the wide, re- the wide release is working for less and less movies, so maybe the smaller films should go this route.
0: Well, a lot of films that go on Netflix uh, do take that route. Um, there was a great Irish film that we played at the Irish Film Festival a couple of years back about two friends who um, try to source uh, all these bags of cocaine that had been dropped in a lake accidentally, and it's had a big life on Netflix, and that was after oh. a really strong festival run around the world.
3: I mean, one of the... Because uh, I friends from TIFF and one of the standard films from TIFF have been Roma, which is getting a Netflix yeah. release, but probably Adelaide. never
2: get a... Finally, uh, hope it, hopefully it plays in Sydney. It might. It's yeah. playing in it's, cinemas around the world, uh, no, which is pretty much unprecedented. anyone at the, the, the big film screen film on, like Tiff
3: on had just said it deserves to be seen in a big screen. Yeah, but because and of that
2: reason... Kwaran and his producers have been able to negotiate a deal for this film to get more wide viewership in theaters than any other Netflix film ever before. So fingers crossed we get it in Sydney.
3: And, and I remember uh, which was that the Hong Joon, uh, Bong Jun ho film. Okja. Yeah, Okja. that Okja. only
2: played pretty much at Sydney and a few but other festivals. Uh, I'm so con. glad to see it on the big screen because I, once I, I saw it back Roma, on my, on my, my
3: laptop it was just a very no, different Bright on the big
2: screen. Oh man. Roma should be a bigger release than that. Take it back.
3: Take it back. I think Batman ever said Are there any other movies that, you know, talking there about there only,
0: that was much better. There are only two <laughs> other films that we have left to talk about. One is An Evening with Beverly Laughlin. It's sucks. This is a review, is that it? Yes, but we should say why. Okay. Um,
3: yeah. Because <laughs> look, Ariana. No, I'm oh, okay. okay. no. <laughs> Aubrey Plaza is in this Together with Craig Never Robinson film like
0: Time Machine. We're nothing like each other. <laughs> as well as the best thing about this film, who's only in it for like 20 minutes at the beginning uh Emil Hirsch our man from Speed, speed Race. Racer So this go, is speed racer. which, which is racer, the alternative go. title for
2: Mandy Oh god based on, <laughs> based on based on Nicolas Cage's proclivities in the second half of
3: the film Uh-huh I see what you did there Speed Racer he, yeah, yeah he races. You explain it and also
2: also something about speed
3: Yeah yep. and racing no, I, I, yeah, yeah. yeah I get I, 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 I get it yeah. Add yeah. yeah. other substances. Just in case. Just, okay, so if you
2: really didn't get it, I'm saying that he <laughs> takes speed and he also races the villains. Yeah. There you go.
3: And he's a very fast individual. He, he races against time. Yeah. While yeah. on speed. Which is not what happens in time
0: any new Beverly Laughlin. I only no speed. got was, to save the world. It was very confusing. I really don't. The, the plot is just completely nonsensical. Cool. Basically, Craig Robinson... look, look, she. Uh, Bev Plaza. <laughs> Aubrey Plaza, Aubrey <laughs> Plaza, not Ariana Grande, not Ariana Grande, who is not in this movie, um, go has an obsession with this television figure played by Craig Robinson.
3: It's Ingrid Goes West in a very it's shitty nothing premise. Nothing like Ingrid Goes West. Really? Same people <laughs> are obsessed with. Wouldn't something.
2: it be great if um if Ariana Grande and Aubrey Plaza <laughs> married, and then their daughter married Northwest. And the name would be North, hang on, um, North Grande Plaza
3: <laughs> or the North
2: Grande, the North Plaza Grande. You
0: know, you, you, you guys always have a go at me about my music taste, but um, her new album Sweet of the No Tears Left to Cry. Really good. She's really talented as a musician. I, I've heard she's actually a bad. Maybe a, Wait, I might are we talking remember. about Aubrey Plaza or, or the, the I North, North, Grande Plaza. <laughs> North Grande Plaza? North Grande Plaza, who is not in this film.
2: It's, yeah. It would be a better, way more subtle and also better place name than Northwest. <laughs> like a, a place name, like I mean, a person's name that sounds like That's a, a, a the like direction Dection. or a place. Yeah, you're yeah. just begging to be North cast Grande in, Plaza is way more yeah, subtle. You're just
3: begging to be cast in North by Northwest. You know,
2: <laughs> North by North Grande Plaza. <laughs>
3: <laughs> 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 <The> <laughs> Plaza,
2: which I think they have featured in the evening, but look, no
0: it's not featured that, that, that
3: entire segment weighed, made way more sense than the entire movie evening with Beverly <laughs> Laughlin look there's a scene in this actually a recurring scene where look he
0: does the young Frankenstein bit you know the Frank Boyle where he grows. And it's really distracting. In at least in Young Frankenstein, it was funny and in different scenarios. Here he just does it for effect, and it like all the jokes in this film, it loses its impact like, the first time, and then it happens again. The jokes are told for a second, third, looks, fourth, fifth. It's like the fourth season of Archer.
3: So sometimes you just wonder why. Like, did you have too much time on your hands, or like you could have just, you know, it's you could like, have done so many things, it's like, 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 like masturbate, or like just, <laughs> it's you know, like Fellini's watch, Eight and a Half. And season, that right? I would
2: not hear a word against the Eight and no, a no, no, Half. No, 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 no. You won't. I'm saying it's like how at the end of Eight and a Half they say was the film something that had to be made anyway. Like maybe it's best to not make the film exactly. if, you, if you actually like, didn't you have know, a great film to you make. Could you didn't have something the to say. Maybe last... you shouldn't celebrate making films just for their own sake. They yeah, need to justify could, their existence. You Could have
3: rewatched Seinfeld, which is a show about nothing, but watching it again makes you more productive than seeing this movie. So you know it's. So many things.
0: And the last film we're talking about, talking about time in our hands, is the opening night film. We're doing this in reverse here. We just make a time squad. Who saw this one? You did. I did.
2: This. I actually was heading to, to yeah. the opening night party screening, then I was like... I think I won't. And turned around and went went back. Yeah. yeah.
3: Uh, this was back very to nice, very nice. Uh, because uh, I had a
2: better night than I probably would have if I had seen. Look, the QA was spectacularly hilarious.
0: It was Johnny Bra, who, as I learned, is a massive rugby fan, and Tim Van Dammen, who uh, was in a very underrated film called Deathgasm from a few years back.
2: He's a. Uh, I yeah. think he directs commercials and such to get by and fund his films. He made this on an $8,000 budget. Yeah. Wow. Very. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And
0: the premise, I mean, the execution was. Wasn't great,
1: but the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the plot. I just, got, I, I, I just got to give
0: credit. I just got to give credit to the plot, which is a really cool idea. Where you get a device where if you, you can go, you can basically go back in time a couple of minutes and around the corner and not know that you've gone back in time. So there's still a future version of you hanging out. Elements mm-hmm. next execution were entertaining. It sounds like
2: it would be great if Edgar Wright directed it.
0: But uh, I think it was more. I don't think it was so much the direction. I think it was a lot of performers who just did not give voice to very interesting characters at all. And when you have no really interesting characters, um, as as interesting as the plot can be, you haven't got a lot going for you.
3: Oh my God! You could have called it "Adolescent Driver," Uh, but the sequel to "Baby Driver." But it's
2: not. But maybe "Adult Driver" is like "Thief" or 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 something by Michael Mann. "Baby Driver" is Edgar is Edgar Wright.
3: Yeah, but what comes after baby um, then? Adolescent,
2: adolescent driver toddler? maybe is drive. To- to- toddler but driver? But you know how sometimes you, you, in some ways you get better when you turn 13, but in some ways you're worse than when you're a kid because yeah. you haven't learned oh, what it's like to be no. an adult yet? That exactly describes e- the relationship of drive to baby driver. Like, it's a better, like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like it's a better movie in some ways Drive yeah but Drive in other ways terrible is way film. Worse. Drive is not a terrible Drive film Drive is
3: an
0: awful it's film it's better and the worse Nicholas than White Baby Driver Nicholas Refn like has made two good it's definitely the adolescence films. of this trio two Bronson and the glorious masterpiece that was um, with a Neon Demon Neon Demon are you, you yes.
3: going to say Neon Demon I still haven't oh seen my Neon God. Demon Drive is the I biggest can't waste of time my girlfriend time. absolutely I ca- hates it I can't, it. can't it was, see Elle fanning the same way I just call her Neon Demon ever since the Neon Demon
0: Drive he just sits there and stares and does nothing nothing happens it's not stylish Stick. It's it is. just slowed that, down. No, so you thinking about
3: only God forgives. Oh, no, only that, God no, forgives. No, no, no. That was, at least like
2: that... I won't trash a movie like that because at least it was interesting. He was trying to do something, even if it didn't No, pull, he was just looking that was the
0: the thing worst, mysteriously. That was the worst thing I saw that week, and I was in a riot. <laughs> so that was awful. <laughs> <horrible. laughs> no, well, the, the riot was much worse. No, I'm, no, I'm
3: pretty sure the riot had more action going on than anything in that movie. So um yeah, uh,
0: uh Drive, wow. <laughs> bad, really no no, bad. No. And Carey Mulligan they played They played, they played drive drive with the, 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 the
3: chamber orchestra, accompanying oh. the movie. Oh, why would I want to subject? Why would I want to? It would be more interesting
2: if this. they had chromatics, or
3: some someone like that playing. If, the thing they is, contributed I, I,
2: some of the best music to the
3: soundtrack. Yeah. But Carey Mulligan, I'm just totally smitten. So I can't. I can't. I can't, I can't hear right, those instance,
2: Well, if you saw places. Chromatics playing live, you could have been smitten with Chromatics. Yeah. Have the you seen like, Newtwin Peaks there, I even they're a very attractive group of people.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I even found wildlife bearable because of Carrie Mulligan, even though. I th- like, I've already admitted this. I just like horrible things being done to Carrie Mulligan on screen. But that's her entire realized. career. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so that's it. I just. I could just keep watching. Something addictive about bad things being done to Carrie Mulligan on screen. And she just evokes She's that kind of- On that pleasant awesome
2: note...
0: <laughs> yes, we will be
2: um, talking... Would you like to go back in time 30 seconds around the corner and come in and say, wait, don't, <laughs> don't say, say that, that thing about Carrie Mulligan. Does <laughs> Mega Time Squad get it, that deep? You're my favorite.
0: <laughs> uh, no, no. There are some fun bits where like, there's multiple versions of the one guy and then Jerry off after him and um, that's... There were some memorable moments. The Q and A was though was spectacularly fun and made the whole. Alexei
2: Topopoulos. yeah, your 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 man.
0: They actually they actually took over the Q I mean, they were uh, just nice. like, "Wait, we're just going to do this." And then Alexei was like having fun. Um, who's at the trivia? Who's running the trivia? I'm supposed we're supposed to be at right now. So, oh wow, <laughs> we are going to be running off next. week. For right,
2: you should come along. I'm saying it on the podcast to pressure you to coming with us. Uh,
3: yeah, another time.
2: <laughs> Ooh, that was a harsh rejection <laughs> That's brutal. from the elusive, depressive Schopenhauer <laughs> reading Virat Nehru.
3: Not, not that elusive, but yeah, definitely depressive, so depends, depends, so give and take. We we
0: just want to give a shout out to the crew, Stefan Pescu and Catherine Berger. And, and all Carrie the-
3: Mulligan,
2: who... I also like the Festival and all the other wonderful <laughs> characters you've spent some time with tonight. That's right. No, but really, thank you to Stefan for the Sydney Underground Film Festival. I love that it's such a community-focused event. Um, I love the focus on getting a guerrilla filmmaking scene going in Sydney. Yeah. But and
3: Yeah, I mean, they work really hard and it comes after the big festivals and they still yeah. pack in a big punch. It's really, um, I think, someone
2: who saw a hole in the market where people couldn't see the sort of films they wanted to see and tried to... Uh, you know, try to fill that void and give yeah. something back to Sydney. Uh, so we can look forward uh, to late, The
3: kind of stuff that would never play elsewhere. Like, you yeah. know, it, it's, you wouldn't see these kind of films otherwise. But
2: I, it wouldn't be right for me not to give a warning <laughs> and uh, a criticism. Because there is something that really annoys me at Suff every single year. Which is the placement of the seats. Oh god! So simply yes. put, I, I understand that the factory theatre is a great place. In terms of, um, first of all, it's location. Secondly, it's vibe, and thirdly, the way that there's five screens all there with a meeting place where you can drink and hang out and do whatever you want in the middle. All of that's great, but
3: subtitle-worthy films are yeah, just the, and even ruined. look.
2: Um, in most of the screens, there's not the tiered seating that you expect in a cinema environment. So you're looking at the back of people's heads if you're not in the very front row. The only screens that avoid this completely, um, if if the you you, you know, uh, cinema one because the screen is higher and you're usually not going to be. Um, blocked by someone's and head. And Cinema bit, 3. And Cinema 3. Um, no, right. actually not Cinema 3. It's the one downstairs. Five yeah, the, the, or four. The, the Wait, cereal, cereal party. Fuse Only, box, yeah, or? but that's not, but most of the time in Cinema 3 it's as bad as anywhere else.
0: So and unless the, you're seeing a movie in Cinema where, 1. Where
3: we saw Unexpected Race. That was quite an intimate, smaller...
0: Yeah, that worked. That was the cinema I was talking about. Cinema 3. Okay. That worked. But um, Cinema
2: 3, you know, you could be unlucky if that had been a more attended session. Because I saw Let the Corpses Turn in there and it was awful. Let the Corpses town was more busy. And it was also subtitled, so I'm, you know, straining around the the person in front of me to be able to read the subtitles for the film. Um, it's not good enough. I, when you, I know that there's a lot of benefits to the factory theater, but when you're paying for a film, you should be able to see the, uh, you know, the whole picture, right? When you're paying cinema, you know, as uh, over ten dollars to see a movie. And when you're watching a subtitled film and you're struggling to read the subtitles, that's unacceptable. There's no reason why people wouldn't just wait for streaming for these films. I want the festival to succeed. I just think they really have to do something about this. Um, if they move to a different venue, it it might be in some ways they'd lose something, but at least they would gain in the, it might not be so good for socializing, which would be a real shame, but they would at least gain in the legibility of the films. Um, the other alternative I see is if they take the approach which they do in the um, late night serial party, which is in the cinemas where the um, screens, ha- you know, are-, are blocked because of a whole bunch of people in a line on par with where this c- you know, um, in line with the cinema screen and, lit- and blocking the view, um, which is to have beanbags. beanbags. People would be on the floor. Um, the screen would be above you. It would work just as it does in the other cinemas um, where they have elevated screens. Um Cinema Four has a little bit of elevation, so that's a bit better. Um, but that was that was screen is tiny. It didn't. Real, I, I don't think. It, granted, I am quite tall. It didn't
0: greatly hinder my movie. I see. I'm short,
2: and you're tall, and that's that's the difference here.
0: And but I, you know, particularly during
2: Relaxer, I feel there were a few heads that were just yeah. The Afro was yeah. in front of me. It's if you don't sit at the front, it's a struggle. Um, it the other. It wasn't an issue for Cinema One at all. No. Um, there is a way that this could have been fixed as well. Um, people would debate on whether this is a good idea or not. Shrink the size of the screens so that they can be placed higher up. And that way, heads will be blocking the view of the screen less.
0: Well, something for next year. Um, yeah. I will say, though, that uh, we did enjoy ourselves run between oh yeah minutes. I loved was, it. I always have a fun time at the and festival you know what? There, and there were a couple of films I wish I'd seen but I just found myself sitting outside in the wonderful
2: environment just chatting with old there's friends
0: there's a point where people you only see once. no I saw the goose then but people you only see once a year there's at this a point ground.
2: where watching the movie would be less advantageous to your life than just hanging out with your friends and that point happens it's at de Underground and there's
0: very few festivals you can talk about that way
2: it's a very laid back place that brings together laid back people in a laid back vibe so props for that
0: and we excited for i think, all to, 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 to I think it's the spirit of uh,
2: stefan had last week on our show really shines through at the festival doesn't it yeah you, like, it, it, it feels like the so festival personality just driven. like driven. Him, you know like and if you meet back his good values you kind of know and it's the volunteers yeah. it's the crew
0: like people who i mean there's a volunteer crowd with festivals but there's a crew who only rep this one yeah that's right and who love it for that yeah, reason cool like,
2: guys yeah so yeah, that yeah. was Sydney Underground Festi- Film Festival for another year,
0: and we'll be back next week with the uh, two finalists from the SF3 sure. smartphone smartphone filmmaking competition. Talking about all things SF3 and DOI and budget filmmaking. Yep. This has been Glenn Falcone, Chris Evans, and Verrat Nehru. We're up to trivia. Have a wonderful night. Enjoy Underground. Enjoy films. Enjoy, Enjoy life. Schopenhauer. Enjoy movies. Good night.